And I might look forward here. I was just looking at uh, JF Garapi's channel. So he recently did a video on 10 reasons why Odyssey is better than YouTube. And JF is doing more and more of his shows on Odyssey instead of YouTube. And I think JF has a lot of good insights into various streaming platforms how to make money as a live streamer in this type of space where you're offering news commentary. He also has interesting thoughts on producing the best quality shows, particularly how do you improve your sound quality. I think he's very smart, very educated in audio production, and he has a PhD in neuroscience. He did postdoc work at Duke University, I believe. So. He's a very smart guy, and he's been a significant trailblazer in doing internet blood sports, and uh, he's been hosting his own show almost daily for, for years. He makes his living from his show, so I think he has things to say. On the other hand, he is just so, so breathtakingly, breathtakingly off base at times. It just seems to have such reckless disregard for the truth. I want to discuss that a little bit. So let me catch my breath, play you a little bit from the latest Decoding Academia, number two from the Decoding the Guru's podcast, False Positive Psychology. Extremely influential, cited thousands of times, called False Positive Psychology. Undisclosed flexibility in data collection and analysis allows presenting anything as significant by Joseph Simmons, Leif Nelson, and Uri Simonson. Simonson. Now, Chris, we had a bit of confusion about which was the right article for me to read. And if you recall, you recommended... We, in inverted commas, did, because mm. you told me so that there was an article, and you gave me the rough title, and you told me the author was Ionidas. Oh, yeah, and so right. I, I read a book called, I read an article called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, very similar to what you said, by John Ionidas. And in fact, the article that you're recommending isn't by Ionidas, it's by Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson. So that would explain why I read the wrong article, Chris. I, I, just, I just realized that as well. Well, they're very similar. They're very similar in tone than I... I this the uh, so what was the title of his one? Why most research findings are wrong, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. So I mean, the two are very interlinked and often get cited together. But the cautionary tale that we will be unable to focus on because he's not an author is that Iandis has become something of a COVID contrarian, or at least he he's been arguing that the virus is not as bad. Okay, so let's have a look at what's going on with uh, JF Garapi. So. If you look at this show, he's got a show here, The Study That Changed My View on All Vaccines. So I, I listened to the show and I looked at the study and it's just so incredibly reckless that he would base like his view on all vaccines uh, on this one study by someone who's uh, seems like quite a crank. So obviously I'm not an expert on vaccines. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist. I'm not a scientist. I don't have the level of education of JF Garapi. And at the same time, I understand how you can change your views based on one paper. So for example, I thought Kevin McDonald with his trilogy on, uh, on the Jews, I, I thought it was really interesting work and I wanted to see an academic challenge to it. And finally, I did by Nathan Kofnis about uh, three years ago or four years ago now. And so Nathan Kofnis' perspective completely changed my perspective on Kevin McDonald and much of the alt-right. So prior to reading Nathan Kofnis, I had accorded many of the leading intellectuals on the alt-right with a moderate degree of respect. And then after I studied Kofnis, 
And I recognized how people like Richard Spencer who said Kevin McDonald was the most important intellectual of the alt-right and Greg Johnson who said it was, it was Kevin McDonald that led him to, to white nationalism, how they wouldn't read Ethan Kaufness's paper and how poorly their, their views on certain issues that have been dealt with in Nathan Kaufness's papers, how they stack up against Nathan Kaufness's work. So I was profoundly changed by one paper by Nathan Kaufness. So I have profoundly changed many times on the basis of one paper. So it's not that I think it's shocking or disappointing or it shows immaturity that you completely change your views based on, on one paper. But what sort of paper do you change your views on? Like, what's the basis or the change. And for JF, it's just, it's so incredibly shoddy that the, the paper that he bases his views on, the, the person behind it has such a dubious track record that, that it, that it makes, you know, JF's perspective on many issues, let's just say lacking credibility. I remember when JF Garapi interviewed Kevin McDonald a few years ago and he headlined the interview, the video, the critique stand, saying that Kevin McDonald's culture of critique stands. And then, about way through the interview, he says to Kevin, well, I think your your critique is good. You just need to drop the group selection part of it. So Kevin McDonald's culture of critique analysis, it was entirely based on group selection. Without group selection, there would be nothing to Kevin McDonald's culture of critique analysis. Now, JF has his technique for speed reading. And so apparently he, he sped read his way through Kevin McDonald's books, but he didn't have the faintest clue about what Kevin McDonald was talking about. So the recklessness of saying the critique stands without understanding anything about the critique and the recklessness saying your critique stands, you just should drop the group selection shows that he's, he's willing to go out on the line and say things without any, without any support. And I noticed that when he does this kind of reckless uh, intellectual positioning, it's always in one direction. It's always in the direction of what his audience wants to hear. So he's very much in line with other pundits. Right? Most pundits serve a particular audience. So right-wing pundits such as Tucker Carlson, they serve a particular audience. And uh, left-wing pundits serve their audience and centrists serve, serve their audience. And so pundits make a living by telling an audience what it wants to hear. And as soon as a pundit stops telling his audience what they want to hear and starts telling them things that they don't want to hear, they completely lose their power, they lose their audience, and very soon they lose their way of uh, making a living. So let's get a little bit of background on this paper that uh, JFL Kristen Cavallari saying she's not vaccinating her children because she believes it could cause autism. It's reignited a very heated parenting debate. ABC's Lindsay Janice has that story for us. Kristen Cavallari, a star of hit reality TV shows Laguna Beach and The Hills, is no stranger to criticism. It's like a disease you can't get rid of. But now the wife of Chicago Bears quarterback Jay Cutler, mother to one-year-old Camden, with another baby boy on the way, is under fire for her choices as a parent after an interview on Fox Business's The Independence. Are you opposed to vaccines? <gasps> oh, we didn't vaccinate. There is a pediatric uh, group. They've never vaccinated any of their children, and they haven't had one case of autism. Cavallari's revelation reigniting the debate over whether to vaccinate. 
One person tweeting, go to medical school and get educated if you feel the need to publicly speak out about these issues. Cavallari defending herself, telling ABC News exclusively overnight, I am not trying to start a controversy or be an advocate. Just a mommy who believes every parent has the right to make their own decision. But pediatrician and Columbia University professor Dr. Erwin Redlener says it's a dangerous choice. Right now we're actually experiencing a mini epidemic of measles and whooping cough in the United States that's been driven by people who would rather believe a celebrity than their pediatrician. The American Academy of Pediatrics says there is no link between childhood vaccines and autism. But for now, as Cavallari asserts, parents have a choice. For Good Morning America, Lindsay Janice, ABC News, New York. Joining us now is our senior medical contributor, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I know you guys were saying we thought this discussion had already been uh, solved, but not the case. It's been reignited. And we should also say Colorado just recently passed a bipartisan measure, making it even more difficult for parents not to vaccinate their children. That's right, just last week. And, you know... It is natural to be concerned for our kids. That That is almost a universal parental emotion. Medically, the stance is clear, and according to the Academy of Pediatrics, current scientific evidence does not support a link between the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, or any combination of vaccines and autism spectrum disorders. The World Health Organization, the CDC, mm-hmm. the Institute of Medicine all have similar statements. But there's still some parents, and how do you align those fears that, that some, some parents have still? I think parents have to answer. Okay, blessings. What's going on, man? Oh, blessings, blessings, blessings. And once again, blessings. Happy New Year, Luke. Happy New no. Year. Okay. So, so uh, uh, what's going on? It's New Year's. I'm uh, getting things organized. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking care of old business, cleaning the apartment, doing chores, feeling good. Excellent. So I just read a book on uh, a book on dealing with chatter in your mind. And uh, it's called Chatter, the voice in our head. And it uh, has all these techniques for reducing the voice in your head when it's when the voice in your head is out of control. Obviously, there are plenty of times that you should listen to the voice in your head. But one thing it says that you can do is organize your stuff. But when you when you organize your stuff, that that tends to tends to have a calming effect on the chatter in your head. So Jordan Peterson's philosophy of uh, being your room. Yeah, I believe that one hundred percent. And uh, I feel like every time I do one of these reorganization binges, I, you know, I feel like I'm reborn. It feels great. Yeah. So let me find, give this a section in the book. Uh, Create order in your environment. When we experience chatter, we often feel as if we are losing control. Our thought spirals control us rather than the other way around. When this happens, you can boost your sense of control by imposing order on your surroundings. Organizing your environment can take many forms, tidying up your work or home spaces, making a list, arranging the different objects that surround you. Find your own way of organizing your space to help provide you with a sense of mental order. So that makes sense to you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I've been sort of doing this. First, I started with my kitchen back in the summer. So I totally, you know, got rid of all kinds of old junk, put move stuff around, added shelves, you know, did all that kind of thing, put the right things in the right places. And it's now made uh, cooking so easy, you know, that uh, I'm able to sort of 
cook, you know, really good, quick meals that are, that are healthy and they're easy to clean up. You know, the whole process has just been so streamlined that I'm rarely inclined to just go outside and eat. And, you know, that in itself, uh, you know, has paid dividends for my health, you know, because I'm not succumbing to uh, junk food and things like that. And uh, it's really, uh, you know, there's a lot of hidden wins inside that advice. So I strongly recommend it. And do you have any uh, resolutions for 2022? Yes, many, many. Uh, You want to hear them? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Okay, one is I'm going to sort of continue, I'm going to try to make uh, better decisions moment by moment. So, um, you know, throughout the day, you have little micro decisions that you make, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes they're just impulsive and they're not considered. And other times you sort of, you you deliberate a bit more carefully. So I'm just going to try and, deliberate a bit more carefully the little decisions that go on throughout my day and try to make better, more strategic, more, uh, you know, efficient quality decisions. So that's one resolution. Okay. Let's, let's hang with that one for, for a minute. Um, so, cause this is, this is a problem that a lot of my sponsees have as well. That they, they start off the day often inspired doing the right things. And then they start, then they start going off track and they start buying into lies such as, you know, I'm going to goof off. My boss won't catch me or, you know, I'll do this tomorrow or, you know, I deserve to uh, take it easy today. Um, so they start the day with the best of intentions, but then they go off track. So are there any, any ways that you can go off track? So for me, I can if I get started with the news or with email or with social media, often for me, that's a bad way to start the day. So I can get off track uh, with my email, with social media, with the news. Um, and I'm, I'm therefore kind of surrendering the, the beginning of my day to other people. So how about for you? Are there ways that you find yourself getting off track? Uh, yeah, so uh, there's lots. Uh, one is that sometimes I... I like I'll just decide to get my car and go do a really kind of trivial errand as a way of blowing off steam rather than because I need to do that that errand at that moment. I sort of find an excuse to, uh, you know, divert myself with like a sort of a meaningless trip that could have been combined with other trips and end up wasting a lot of time. So does that make any sense? Yeah. So sort of like, you know, when I was growing up, my <laughs> my father used to just go on these joy rides, basically, just cruising around, <laughs> you know, for no apparent reason, you know. And this, I, you know, looking back on that, I just said, you know, who could do that in this, in this day and age? Just waste a whole block of time like that. So, uh so, yeah, uh, that's one thing. I mean, obviously, that's not a crippling handicap, but it's like that's time that I could have, A, been exercising if I was too uh, frazzled to do any sort of intellectual work, um, oh, but which feeds into part two. So 
I sort of organize the things I need to do that are either physically demanding or mentally demanding. So if some, so if I have a lot of energy and I can't sit still, I'll do all of my physically demanding tasks and then vice versa. So I sort of match my energy level to the nature of the task that I need to do. So rather than force myself to sit still when I'm really energetic or vice versa, you know, force myself to be energetic when I'm rather sort of contemplative. So this is what I mean by sort of just tactical decision-making. Okay, and let's, let's keep going on this. What are other ways that you um, tend to get off track? So for me, I'm often uh, tempted to do tasks that are, that are easy uh, rather than tasks that are important and, and more demanding. And so I will, I will distract myself doing all sorts of things that I know I can do easily rather than tackle the most important tasks. But uh, what are some other ways that you tend to get off track during the day? Um, usually up until relatively recently, fatigue, I would, I would get very tired in the afternoon and then start either napping or just kind of passively browsing the internet. So, uh, passive, passive internet use is probably, you know, tantamount to watching television or something. Um, so if I find myself doing that, I like to, I, what I'm trying to do is either be completely on or completely off. Yeah. So, you know, either working vigorously or completely asleep, that would be like the ideal state, a hundred and zero and try to avoid these gray areas of sort of being awake, but being really just, you know, sloppy, lazy, lackadaisical, unproductive, you know, uh, try to avoid those moments because those end up creating the worst feelings ultimately. And what do you eat for lunch? Is there food that you're eating that's making you tired after lunch? Because I notice a lot of people I know get sleepy after lunch. Uh, I, I almost, I don't, if I eat lunch, it's a very, very light lunch. Um, the fatigue, I think, was um, part of it was diet, and then part of it was like I would be over exercising. It's just specifically during that swimming period that I was in. Uh, these uh, swimming bouts, as refreshing as they were, were also physically exhausting, and the exhaustion sort of spilled over into the next day. And they would lead me to be like really incapacitated during the workday, which led to other problems. So I would have to sort of, I'm now going to sort of strategically place these sort of high exertion periods, recognizing that I'm not young anymore and that there's going to be, you know, a consequence. Yeah, my dad, my dad would often say you can't do hard mental work after you've done hard physical exertion so he would always leave his jog until the late afternoon yeah that makes sense but the other thing that i do which i think is very important that everyone ought to do is just do your hard tasks your onerous tasks in the morning as soon as you wake up or as soon as you possibly can yeah Uh, because a they'll be easier because you'll have more just mental juice to work with in the morning and b like you won't have that sort of drag of dreading something. 
Yeah. Right. If you put yeah. it off, that just just the fact that you're dreading this task rather than having it be behind you, it just sort of saps your joy from the day. So if you can just sort of do your, uh, you know, eat your eat your bitterness in the morning and then have it be behind you, then you can really relax for the rest of the day. And uh, it's, back- good mm-hmm. one, Go well, it's good to have one good accomplishment. It's what it's good to have one solid accomplishment, at least one solid accomplishment each day, uh, that you can sort of feel good about having done. Yeah, and and back to meals. I found that once I made sure I had plenty of protein at each meal, I never uh, got sleepy again after a meal. Also, I noticed that I have more willpower after a meal. So generally speaking, willpower declines during the day, but then you get a yeah. burst after you eat. So there are a lot of onerous tasks that I didn't want to face until I'd eaten, eaten lunch or even eaten dinner. Um, cause then I get a renewed boost of willpower as, as long as what I'm eating as, as uh, you know, plenty of protein and, and fat, uh, then, hmm. then I have more willpower to tackle difficult tasks or to try to learn things. Yeah. I, I've been tinkering with my diet a lot, you know, the juicing, uh, sort of fallen off that for a while. I just kind of maxed out on this. I, I, I don't think these extreme sort of dietary practices work over the long haul. They're sort of good at for like strategic bursts for like a specific objective, like weight loss. Um, so I only eat one substantial meal a day and then breakfast and lunch are very light. Now I'm able to do that because I, I do a lot of this, you know, this coconut oil coffee, you know, these sort of enhanced coffee, yeah, fat enhanced coffees. Uh, these seem to work for me and uh, a lot of quality fats like vegetable, uh, coconut, avocado, uh, there's one more, an olive oil, right? Good quality oils rather than kind of this crap mass produced oil. Uh, I almost avoid a big lunch for the exact reason because it does put me in a coma. If I have any sort of starchiness yeah. at lunch, I'm a goner. You know, <laughs> the day's over. So, I mean, all the productivity is, productivity is gone. Uh, so I, I just avoid that. Now, I had a thought on the juicing thing. I, I don't think that we're generally speaking going to keep doing things that are onerous and all the cleaning, like all the time that's involved with the juicing, I think that plays a role in discouraging people from juicing. Right. No, the barriers are there. Um, But I will say, if you really just are unhappy with the amount of weight that you're carrying and you want to get rid of it pretty quickly, uh, you know, if you can sort of resolve to do this rather unpleasant, amount of preparation, it will work. You will get results. And that can be a catalyst for other things. So, you know, if you do lose this weight, let's say it's 10 pounds, uh, you know, you're going to, uh, you know, you're just, you're going to have a clearer mind and you're just going to feel lighter and have more energy generally. And then you can sort of, sort of, you know, trend back towards your original diet, but maybe be a bit more judicious and disciplined about what you eat. So I I think it's a good strategic thing to do here and there, but it's not a lifestyle. Are there any lies that you tell yourself typically during the day that send you off track? I know a lot of people, they, 
they tell themselves lies like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow when they probably won't. Um, my boss isn't going to realize, you know, what I'm doing. Um, I'm just going to take you know, five minutes to surf the internet and then I'll get right back to work. Um, do you notice that there are any weight, any things that you say to yourself that contribute to you going off course during the day? Uh, yeah, I remember you asked that and I was trying to think about that. And I guess one lie was thing will be is sort of like, well, things will just work out. Yes. Right? Yes. That's a really common one. And, you know, I'm very guilty of that. And, um, what else? Huh. What, what do you tell yourself right before you look at pornography? <laughs> I don't look at pornography, Luke. I don't look at pornography, period. Yeah, that's another lie. It's true. Okay. It's absolutely true. I, I, I tell you if it were not true. I looked at pornography when I was like in, in my teenage years, you know, but then, you know, it, it kind of recognized that it's sort of a, it's just a weird mental space to be in, you know? Did you do anything for New Year's? Nothing, nothing at all. Absolutely nothing. I, uh, I made some, uh, Thai cook curry for, for dinner and, uh, I turned it at about eight. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. Yeah. But everyone our age uh, that I know is, does pretty much the same thing. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you know, it used to be like, I, I used to, you know, uh, you know, poo-poo the idea of just getting a good night's sleep as being important. But now it's, you know, it's, I see it as critical now. And I, I try to keep, I try to keep, whether it's a work day or not, you know, like today is not a work day, but I still keep my work mentality through the weekends, meaning I do other tasks. I get, you know, other things done as if just to keep the rhythm of working in the morning, you know, working in the morning to the, to the early afternoon and then resting. So just so that my body has this very uh, predictable cadence. And I, they say that's very good for your health over the long term if you can develop that. So um, I don't know why I got on that tangent. So what's your need for drama and excitement? Because I, I do need some some drama and excitement. I just don't like it in my personal life, but mm. I like it in my, say, my streaming life or in some of my intellectual interests. I need some drama and excitement, but I don't want, I don't want pathological levels of drama. I don't want drama that distracts me from the things that I need to be doing. And I don't want drama mm. that causes damage to my life. I don't want... I don't want my pursuit of excitement to become addictive so that it takes me away from, from my best self and my best life. So what's your relationship to drama and excitement? So when you say drama, you mean like interpersonal friction with people, or do you mean consuming internet drama as a passive witness, you know, passively following internet drama, or do you mean actually being involved with a? Well, either. I mean, both are, both are meeting a need for drama. So there's there's interpersonal drama and then there's you know abstract on the internet drama. Um, well, it's sort of one of my other resolutions that I was thinking about this morning was 
being extremely uh, be very reluctant to gauge politically as much as I've been. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to say zero, but I do recognize the futility of sort of political squabbling on the internet. Um, so if, if that's considered drama, I've sort of resolved to do a lot less of it. Um, I just sort of feel like the politics just sorts themselves out, sort of like that Tom Wolf. Yes. You mentioned. Yes. So, so I'm going to try to get away from that. Uh, let me just give the uh, Tom Wolf quote in case people don't know it. He says, American politics is a train that goes down the track. People on the right scream and yell, and people on the left of the train scream and yell, but the train just keeps going down the track. All right, back to you. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, well, I, one thing I noticed that I've been, you know, done very poorly over the years is I have never really dressed well, right? Yeah. I, I dressed kind of shabbily and I didn't, and I, you know, I, I found myself leaving the house in pajama bottoms, you know, like yeah. lounge pants, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and I didn't think much of it until I caught a glimpse of myself in a mirror, you know, in like a, in like a, in a storefront window and you can see a reflection. And I was like, God, that's clownish. Why did I do that? You know? And then, cause then I realized, you know, you don't really dress for yourself. You dress for other people. You don't want to be a burden. You don't want your appearance to be a, a burden on other people. Yes. You don't want to bring others down. Yeah. And so I didn't realize that there's sort of, I used to think to like fuss about your clothes was just sort of narcissistic. But there's, there's an actually, there's a, there's a non narcissistic reason for dressing well and properly. Uh, and that is that you don't <laughs> distress other people. <laughs> yeah. Especially yeah. women. Women yeah. are very, very attuned to what you're wearing, how you're wearing it, you know, whether you're, 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 you're tucked in or not tucked in, all these things. They're, they're highly, highly attuned to that way more than men are. But, it is a part of your expression that you that needs to be attended to. Okay, there's uh, Bernard says in the in the chat. I just love internet drama. So, to what extent is loving internet drama healthy? At what point does it become unhealthy? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, obviously. People have down, it's, it's a time filler, right? Yeah. And it is amusing. And, you know, and it can be boy, you know, you can sort of lift your mood in certain ways, you know? Um, And so I'm not trying to say, but if you're sort of obsessing on it and thinking about it when you're not actually like if you're thinking about an internet fight or drama in your regular life, you know, it's consuming like real mental energy, then you've crossed a line, you know, because it's nothing that you can do anything about. It's not about your life. It's not about doing constructive things in your own life. It's, it's, uh, it's just a peculiar obsession. Uh, but you know, you know, from streaming, I mean, there have been some real highs. There's yes. some real, like, comedic, 
yes. high, high comedy moments <laughs> in internet drama. There's no two ways about it, you know? So I don't want to say that it's, it's certainly not the worst thing in the world, but you know, it does, it, it needs to be limited at the same time. You know, everything, everything in its place and everything, you know, right, just the right amount, I think is critical. But if, if you're, if you're denied, if you're, del- I guess it's a real problem if you are um, not attending to what really needs to be attended to, if it's a substitute for attending to what you need to attend to. So I could see it sort of as a reward, like you could reward yeah. yourself with yeah. a little internet drama as long as you've gotten one key task done that day. Right. You, know, right. you, should treat, you should treat it like chocolate or something, you know? Right. So I'm not one of those who think that, you know, great people talk about ideas and, you know, lower people talk about people. You know, I think people are just as important as ideas, if not more so. And if you're interested in people, then why would you not be interested in their foibles and in the, in their drama? But where, where it crosses the line is if it causes you to do things that you know, damage your own life, if it causes you to do things that get you fired, if you are... Yeah. Uh, pulling yourself away from healthy interpersonal relationships to, you know, go online and catch up on the latest internet drama, then, then, then it's uh, distracting you from what you really need to do. So whether it's watching Netflix or watching sports or, or following the news, um, if, you know, all these things are yeah fine in their place, but if it's, if it's causing you to, uh, to distract you from the tasks that you really need to be doing, then obviously it's moved from, from an adaptive, you know, playful addition to your life to something that's maladaptive. So I guess it's the effect it has on your life. And also one thing I noticed that people who participate in internet drama, that uh, the things that people say online start feeding back into their behavior in real life. So it's not like the internet is this world that's completely separate from, from real life. So when people start, uh, ship posting and and doing you know really uh, graphic uh, bad taste uh, trolling that this tends to feed into their everyday behavior in a, in a negative way. So if you're using internet drama to connect you to other people, then it's healthy. Like if you're using anything that you use that connects you to other people, if you go bowling with people, if you you, know, you participate in sports with people, you follow sports with people, then it, then it's a good thing. But if your participation distances you from others and damages your relationships, then then it's negative. Yeah. And I was thinking about um, sort of something along the same lines, which is the uh, the anonymity that you have online. I don't, I'm not particularly anonymous online, but a lot of people are. And a lot of th- things are said by people because they're anonymous. And yeah. so there's a certain spirit of, uh, frankness and uh, uh, uncaringness uh, in the sort of utterances that it makes you, uh, you know, and it, I can say it cuts both ways. This, um, this ability to say something regardless of the impact that it has on other people's feelings, I think can be correct in some places and it can be incorrect in other places. So I think well, let, let me just stop you there. Obviously, there are times when what you, you have to say is more important than other people's feelings. 
And yeah. then usually not though. In, in interpersonal relationships with people who matter to you, usually not, mm-hmm. but sometimes yes, right? Yeah. And I've I've come up with a situation at work very recently, you know, and, and like regardless of the sort of like the you know, the brazen, you know, caustic things I say in online chat, I'm actually seen as somebody that's very, very diplomatic. Like um I I know how to pull my punches very, very well. And I, I, I think maybe the online experience is sort of an outlet for all those times that you wish you hadn't pulled your punches. It's sort of a, a release valve for that type of energy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so is that healthy or is that unhealthy? Well, it depends. Obviously, using it as a relief valve, if it exacerbates uh, tendencies to get you in trouble in real life, then it's unhealthy. But... So I'm I'm skeptical of the release valve because I think everything you do affects you, and so like if you go for a run, right, that's a release relief valve. If you vent to a friend, that's a relief valve. But if you say, "Hey, die, you you jerk, you should just commit suicide," I, and then it's, then you think then you justify it. Oh, I'm just blowing off steam. You know, now now I'm going to be better in real life. Um, I'm I'm skeptical mm-hmm. of that. It's depending it depends on what you're doing to blow off the steam. Like if you're telling people to die, um, I, I don't think that's a healthy way to blow a sting. Yeah, and uh, I mean, my thing is sarcasm, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have, I can be, I am very sarcastic. There's no question about it. That's that was my sort of primary mode of being, basically from high from high school onward, right? And it, it, it made me a lot of friends and a lot of enemies. And um, and I, I'd like to sort of, you know, get past that at a certain level. I feel like it's, I think ultimately it's a negative, I don't know, I debate whether or not it's a negative trait or not. Um, but it's definitely there and I do have to find myself uh, restraining it because a lot of people don't respond well to it. Oh, one thing I've noticed, particularly in a, in a workplace, is to know who you can be a sarcastic with. For example, most women yeah. don't appreciate sarcasm, but a very tiny yeah. percent do. And then there are quite mm-hmm. a you know there are a reasonable number of guys that appreciate sarcasm. So I will still say mm-hmm. you know horrible things, but I <laughs> limit who I say them to. So I, I blow off steam with, with certain people, but I, I don't engage in sarcasm and shock jock talk with just anyone. I, I think if you just, if you know your audience and you also know where your audience is that day, because some people may be glad for sarcasm one moment, but then, you know, something happens, you know, their spouse gets really sick, you know, they're not going to be down for sarcasm. So you have to read who you're talking to. You have to know the person and the situation. Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, and I've made that mistake where, like, I, you know, like in a work setting or social, probably a work setting, I said something very sarcastic, and I got a lot of laughs. And the laughs sort of went, you know, this feedback went to my head. Mm-hmm. And that just told me to double and triple down on the sarcasm. sarcasm. And then eventually, I'd, I would just push it too far and rub the wrong people the wrong way. 
I remember I got kicked out of this Friday night uh, Jewish group uh, <laughs> having Shabbat dinners, and I said some things that got a lot of laughs. But the rabbi yeah. who ran the occasion says sometimes people laugh out of nervousness. So I'm not saying that was true in your instance, but I mm. recognize that that is a is a point. And so I used to be much less discerning with my with my shocking humor. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, like certain people, that is their role that's carved out for them. Yeah, and I'm thinking about Don Imus, you know. Uh, particularly where he just, you know, he was sort of like this, he was the official, is there a word for someone that practices sarcasm? Jester. <laughs> he was like a court what? jester. He was the court yeah. jester. Yeah. Yeah. But he would be there elbow to elbow with very powerful politically collected people. And he'd be saying, you know, some very sharp things to them, you know, and, it always struck me as strange that that role, I guess Jester is what it is, but it's sort of like all that energy needs to be bottled up and contained and managed, you know? So a lot of like really strong political feelings get channeled through this one official Jester. I guess there's probably other others. Uh, yeah. I mean, Howard Stone is, is a Jester. I mean, in, in my own family, I'm the, the Joker in, most of my classes, I was the class clown. So mm -hmm. people expect kind of uh, irresponsible humor from me. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I think I was, I wasn't officially the class clown, but I think I did fill that role because uh, I would often be at the center of a lot of jokes. You know, you'd be a bunch of laughter going on and then people would be surprised to find out that I was in the middle of it and the source of the, the laughter. <laughs> so, uh, okay, let's get back to lies that we tell ourselves or things that we tell ourselves. So I, I did some research on this in the past few days and I, I read some lists and, and some of them resonated with me. So there's nothing I can do. So there's certain fair amount of passivity in me. And so this attitude, there's nothing I can do. That's uh, that's been a fairly big part of my internal life. Um, you, do you resonate with that? Do, do you struggle with passivity? Uh, you know, that's really interesting because, like, I struggle with this idea, and maybe this is this is I'm just trying to elevate this particular attitude to be something more lofty. But I, I, I'll say, well, it's really up to God, you know. Yeah. I'll say that, you know, don't struggle so hard. You know, you're, you're, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, you know. Like, I remember, like, really wanting something, like, wanting something really badly and just going after it really hard and really, um, you know, really going for it never getting it and then like a few months later being glad i never got it you know yeah. i can't think of a particular example but there yeah. there is that dynamic where you know all your striving for certain things are are based on a story that may not be true that you need that thing in the first place and so like i try to have like a lighter touch i've had weird things where like 
you know, I, I would be struggling financially and I would work really hard, really hard, really hard and still not get there and get to really desperate situations. And then it would all come to naught. And then I'll just, you know, months later, I'll just walk into this glorious situation financially with no effort whatsoever. You know, it just seems like my effort is just not... It's not necessarily, it's never directly rewarded, but maybe because of all of that striving before you sort of set yourself up for the other more, what seems like easy reward. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, there's no inherent relationship between what we want and what's good for us. I think that's what you're saying. That's true. Yeah. But even our efforts, our efforts. Man plans and God loves, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that just seems very true to me. But another of my favorite quotes, you know, this is like probably the best quote, the the one quote that I've got the most mileage out of, which is, it was like in the library or something. It was pray to God, but keep rowing to shore. Yes. (laughs) That's, Right. I don't know. Is that from the Bible? But uh, No, but it's a good one. You know, and that's, I think if you don't row to shore, if you don't keep rowing, you don't get the benefit of grace. You know, you right. need to row and pray. <laughs> right. In, in 12 but, step, there's this attitude that recovery is something that is, that is bestowed upon us by grace, but it, it doesn't happen through us, but it never happens without us. So we are an essential part of, of our recovery, but there's also an attitude of grace that, uh, you know, we get more than what we've actually put in. Yeah. So to get back to your question, like, why well, as I tell myself, like, uh, this, it'll all work out in the end type of thing. Um, uh, is probably one, I don't know if it's a lie, but it's definitely suspect. Yeah. You know, and uh, like, uh, like these people that, you know, Tahoe just got a bunch of snow, right? Yeah. You've heard about all the snow up in yes. Tahoe, like tremendous amount. And so they got stuck in traffic for hours. So a certain percentage of them just said, well, it'll just all work out. Right. <laughs> And it didn't. I mean, they were really, and it wasn't Donner Party material, but the Donner Party is an example of, it'll all just work out. Oh, yeah. One thing I noticed religious people do this is like, oh, if God sent someone into my life, then I can't turn them away. Well, I mean, that is like off offloading to God what is your responsibility. You know, It's your responsibility to determine who stays in your life and who doesn't. And so, you know, I'm there's a time when you've done everything you can, everything that is is your responsibility, then the attitude, you know, I'll leave it to God or I'll leave it to the universe, then I think that works. But if you're not doing what you need to be doing, this I'll leave it to God is just irresponsible and a cop-out. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's very true. And like, and like you like, like, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, it's like you, you put a lot of weight into a, you put a lot of value in like a relationship that just seemed to happen and be spontaneous and natural and just seemed to fit. So you sort of say, ah, this is divine providence, right? You attribute yeah. divine providence to 
to certain uh, fortuitous accidents and things. And therefore, you leave that you keep them in your life much longer than you should because you feel as though it's some sort of divine message. Yeah, very true. Um, another another lie that I think we tell ourselves is, "I know what I'm doing," and and sometimes that's true, but frequently it's not true. Um. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Is that really a lie? Well, it's a lie if if you don't. I don't know what you're doing. Oh, you mean so if you don't know? Well, hmm. Give me an example. I, I'm not. I'm having trouble visualizing this one. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, if uh, if a plumber is is fixing your uh, like your kitchen sink, and you're concerned that he's you know doing damage and doesn't know what he's doing, and the plumber says, "I know what I'm doing," when he doesn't really, you know, that's a horrible thing. If okay. um, if someone offers to crack your back and they say, "I know what I'm doing," but they really don't, you know, that could be a horrible thing. Uh, if someone, but that's, these aren't things that you. I mean, I'm looking specifically from your life. You've not pretended to be a plumber, right? Oh, right, 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 right. So where, where, see, yeah, it's so much harder to apply it to to my life. But I know what I'm doing. So frequently, I haven't paid attention to details, and this is really mm. this has really cost me. And mm. um, when I was when I was in high school. I had the attitude that my grades didn't really matter because I was going to be a journalist. And hmm. so I didn't know what, what I was doing. I've often had the attitude that how I dress doesn't matter. Um, and that wasn't right either. Um, I'm trying to think of any harm that I've done to other people with the attitude. I, I know what I'm doing. Oh, so I've been working at my brother's nursery. And so um, I was spraying with Roundup. And I hmm. made really, I really took great care to when in doubt, you know, don't spray in, in that area. Um, I, I try to take great care not to, not to do any damage. And so I, I try to do all my work at the garden center with the attitude, the opposite of, I know what I'm doing, but rather, you know, I'm just going to do what I'm told and when in doubt, you know, pause and stop. Um, yeah. Okay. But, uh... I mean, yes, you're describing overconfidence and then underconfidence, but mostly overconfidence. That's what I know what I'm doing means, right? You're yeah. overconfident about your ability. But is that the same category as a lie? Well, let's say you're you're driving and you don't know where you're going and your girlfriend <laughs> says, hey, you know where you're going? And you say, I know what I'm doing. And you don't. <laughs> you know, that's that's yeah. not a good thing. Like, we should be in reality. So when we don't know where we're going, we should be able to say, I don't know where I'm going. If we're, if we're looking at a car that's broken down and we open up the, the, the hood and look at it, and if we don't know what we're doing, we, we should be saying, I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. I, I, in the scheme of things, I think this is one of the, uh, the most mild, because the, the, the inverse of that is I can't do anything, right? Yeah. I, I can't do any, I can't figure things out, right? I can't, I have no sort of internal resources to figure things out on the fly. Oh, here's another place where this applies, where you're doing edgy things online and your friends and family are concerned. So you respond, hey, I know what I'm doing. 
So that, that's yeah. probably applicable to me. I had a lot of friends and family concerned about my online activities. And I said, I know what I'm doing, but uh, I'm not sure how true that was. Now, sometimes I, I got in the compulsion and and I didn't really think through the implications of what I was doing. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about like how often, at one point you were streaming a tremendous amount. Yes. Like, tremendous, like two plus hours a day, yep. uh, you know, six days a week. Yep. Maybe even seven days. Yep. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, you were burning up a lot of emotional, intellectual resources on that. Yes. That, you know, left a deficit in other parts of your life, I'd imagine. Yes. And um, so maybe, yeah, maybe you weren't aware of, at the time, though, you know, these were these were some of the, uh, these are the halcyon days of yes. the, uh, Luke Ford uh, streaming career. <laughs> so it would have been hard, hard to stop, I'd imagine. But, yeah, well, that's one thing. It's just like, it's okay. So back to my original point about strategic decisions, right? I'll just do this stream, you know? And so you have to, there's opportunity cost. And then there's sort of hidden energy costs involved in these. Yeah. So decision to make a stream is like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to A, stream, and B, spend, spend energy on this stream. So it's worth it to me for me to do this. And you're going to say, these are the two costs of me streaming. And, you know, I'm not saying don't stream. I'm just saying weigh the costs carefully. So that's what I intend to do with my life this new year is just weigh my individual decisions a little bit more. So, so talk to me more about how you get off track during the day, because this really interests me. I'm, I've worked hard the past five years trying to build build a life and build my days where I don't where I don't regret much where where I'm not going off course where um, you know I'm doing what I intended and so I have a certain discipline for the first couple of hours of the day and I eat breakfast and I read the news and then I then I do work and so it's really important to me most days I feel good at the end of the day because I've done the things that I meant to do, that, that my insides and my outsides approximately match, that my agenda and then the things that I tried to do, you know, line up with, with my agenda. But obviously there, there are days that, that I fail, um, such as by getting distracted by social media or, or the news um, or you know, failing to confront, you know, more important tasks that I, I need to do. Um, so, what or getting into unnecessary drama with people that sometimes uh, sends me off track um not noticing where i'm offending people um not noticing where my actions are having negative effects on other people um not making the client's priorities or the boss's priorities my priorities so therefore you know distance would open up between me and a client or between me and a boss um I, i'm curious tell me more about ways that you've gotten off track during during an ordinary day um i guess i guess it starts yeah it starts online like uh i don't like read the news i'll listen to people discussing the news but i don't read the news but uh i will 
it's one thing to listen to a live stream. It's quite another to actually read. Once you start reading the contents of the chat, that's when you're in trouble. That's when, <laughs> that's when your productivity, that's when your productivity is totally at risk because, you know, you can't do, you can't do your normal work and read the chat at the same time. So that's, it's a very key Rubicon not to cross if you want to remain productive. So, but I, you know, I did recognize that quite a while ago and I've started putting on just a lot of ambient music uh, rather than listen to live streams during the key part of my day, which is, you know, the morning. So I try, I try to put in, if I do like a three to four hour session every day, starting in the morning, I'll at least have one accomplishment to discuss at the meeting and that I will feel as though you know, I will, I will, I will not feel any guilt. I will not feel any uh, uh, remorse for not having done something. So, after this four-hour period, then I go into this sort of kind of half-power zone, where I'm sort of fifty percent social media, fifty percent work. You know, kind of going back and forth between messages and then real work, et cetera, et cetera. So then after that period, depending if I had lunch or not, then, then it's complete nosedive after that. You physically, you know, you just, there's a physical dimension to this now that I didn't used to have. Like I physically run out of energy after about six hours of work. Yeah. But so, yeah, I guess my biggest vice, you know, is, is the internet ultimately, but I, you know, to me, the stakes are so high that I, I really am able to, to hold that discipline because it's sort of the foundation. Everything else remains built upon that. And I just can't even jeopardize that in even the slightest. So I don't. But if I were truly like a good New Englander, you know, I would just power through and do no social media whatsoever during the day. Yeah. Uh, but I, that's a standard I've not been able to meet. And what are your other New Year's resolutions? Uh, so let's see, what do we discuss? Okay, I discussed I'm going to be a little more charitable. I, I sort of realized during the past four years, I, 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 I have not been charitable. Uh, you know, um, doesn't mean I'm going to go crazy with it, but, you know, I, I look, you know, I just thought about how little I actually give away, and it wasn't much, <laughs> you know. And um, so I have, I can try to incorporate an aspect of charity in, in my life somehow. I'm going to find a, the appropriate vehicle for that. So um, you got any ideas? Oh, yeah. Find a, an organization where you can volunteer your time because that will also connect you with other people. Yeah, yeah. Now, what is your theory? What is your opinion of giving to you know people on the street, street urchins? Oh, very that, strongly, very strongly opposed. You're opposed in all cases. Yeah. So that's a hard line for you. Yeah, but but if you if that's something important to you, then join a group that works with the homeless. So it's you don't homeless. like this sort of freeform, yeah. spontaneous yeah. acts of charity are just. Not cool. Not to not to encourage people on the streets, you know, because most of them are mentally ill, drug addicts, and alcoholics. But you know, go work with an organization that's doing good work with those people, 
I give that way. And then, then, I mean, if there are friends or family in need, you know, give, give to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but if you want to help the homeless, for example, I think it, I think it, to do it within, within an organization that has some expertise and knows what it's doing. Hmm. So I get very, uh, I, I'm often inclined to give to like younger people that, that seem like they can go either way. Seems like their lives are, are salvageable. You know, I, I'm inclined to give to these sorts of people when I see them. And I used to do it quite often. Uh, but you're saying that's even a bad idea. Yeah, I think it's a really bad idea because you're encouraging and subsidizing bad behavior. So, like, work with an organization that is effective, you know, at helping people rebuild their lives rather than just freelance out there because because when you give to a homeless person you're encouraging more homelessness and you're encouraging more begging true 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 well i'll definitely think about that i'll think about that i i i don't know like the idea of me like going somewhere and you know what do you do spoon out put spoons of soup into bowls and things like that. I don't know if I'm really... No, what you're primarily doing is you are connecting with other people. So it's not necessarily the homeless. You're connecting with other people who work with the homeless. Like human connection is where life is at. So you meet people by volunteering. It's It's not a matter of spooning soup into bowls. It's a matter of connecting with other people. And learning from other but, people. But who, who, who am I connecting with? The people for whom I'm giving the soup or the people with, I'm, with whom I'm working? The people with whom you're working. Now, you may on occasion connect with people to whom you're giving soup. But generally speaking, you'll be connecting with other people who are volunteering. People who are like yourself and people with mm-hmm. whom you can form a relationship. Um, well, no, I had a thought and I left it. Okay, well, I have a very dim view of organized charity. I think it's a grift. Like, I, I, I feel like all these things, these, like, walk for cancer, walk for MS, swim for heart disease, you know, all of these things are just grifts. They don't do anything for heart disease. They just go, they just, it's just money that you're giving to the organizers and then who then give a token amount to some hospital or something. But I have a dim view of organized charity. Right. Well, so do some research and find charities that really help. Like maybe there's a there's a neighborhood group that picks up trash. Maybe like there is. In fact, that's a good idea. There is in my neighborhood. There's a there there's like this guy that's sort of heading up sort of an anti pause effort in in my neighborhood. And, and maybe uh, there's anti crime. You know, like uh, the Guardian Angels in New York. Maybe yeah. There's like a neighborhood watch that you can join. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I, I guess that's what it'll end up being. Um, um, yeah, it makes sense. There's a group that goes around that, that sort of cleans up graffiti um, in local businesses, but I'm more inclined to like paint graffiti, <laughs> like some edgy meme. Well, that, that's why you need to go join this group, perhaps, that cleans up graffiti because it would help you. I think it might help you. It might reprogram some of your instincts. And most importantly, you'll yeah. connect you with other people. So when I, when I like deliver food in the Jewish community, yeah. you know, I'm connecting to other people. When I 
do any volunteer work within the Jewish community in particular. I, I'm you know, hanging out with my friends and making new friends. Uh, so I'm sure you're going to, okay. Fair point. Uh, and I have something to consider and I'm, I probably will eventually do something like that. Now, does charity have to be intrinsically unpleasant? No, right? or, or, no, 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 right. no. You could you go join a charity where you get to meet hot chicks. I mean, it could be yeah. charity can be a blast. Charity can be a yeah. f- fun, and it doesn't make it any less charitable. No, charity does not. Volunteering does not have to be unpleasant. Volunteering does not have to go against the grain. You can do volunteering that fits in with your strong points and minimizes, yeah. you know, contact with your weak points. So find mm. volunteering work that, that fits who you are. Like I'm not, I'm not changing diapers. I'm not going out there changing bedpans. Like I, I'm not yeah. doing work that is contrary to my personality. I'm doing volunteering work that fits with my personality, and that I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I guess cleaning. I can handle cleaning up graffiti. I think that's what I'll do, Luke. I'm that's glad a- we had this conversation. I'm glad we. <laughs> <laughs> so uh any day now you're gonna be uh boarding that uh big airplane huh yeah in uh, 12 days i'll be getting on a jet plane oh, back boy. to los angeles it'll be throngs weeding <laughs> greeting you at the airport <laughs> 40 40 giant signs 40 40 <laughs> Oh, well. Oh, but uh, lovely weather here in San Francisco, finally. Well, we had a really rough December. Lots of rain. Lots of rain. Now it's brilliant sunshine and everything's green. So California will be in good shape when you get back. Excellent. So anything else going on? Is there any blood sports you've been paying attention to or anything else going on? Uh, Blood sports online? No, sure. No, no, no. I, I really dialed that way back. Um, is there something worth talking, uh, paying attention to? This, what's this? Jack Murphy guy did something or other. I'm hearing things about that, but um, has Richard done anything uh, noteworthy of late? I, yeah, I have no idea. So I'm kind of kind of out of it. I've uh, yeah. I, I reduced my internet consumption to about a half of what a third of what it normally is. Spending more time going on a walkabout. So I went on a walkabout with some some people uh, yesterday. There were some blokes. There were some Sheilas. And there was this mm-hmm. one bloke who was saying really politically incorrect things, man. He, he, he talked about, oh, that he could just judge someone's intelligence by skin color. It's like I was really offended. And, <laughs> and then what else did he say? Oh, oh, he talked about how much he didn't like stupid people. How hard oh, yeah. it was to interact with stupid people. I was like, oh man, they just haven't had enough opportunity and love and caring and <laughs> compassion. And then, yeah. then he wanted to talk about, oh, what great disasters could hit Tenham Sands? Like this mm-hmm. bloke, he just had, he just had a fetish for disasters. He said, oh, mm-hmm. could we have a tsunami hit here? Or maybe like a biker gang that could hit here and sell crack to kids or, Maybe there could be like a homosexual gang that would come along and redecorate people's homes and throw away their clothes that weren't in good taste. And uh, man, so offensive. Yeah, this 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 wasn't you, right? This was another bloke. I, I, or... I, I, if this was me, I would not recognize that side of me. It's 
<laughs> okay. Uh, so if you were to go back, would you go to Ten of Sands or would you go to uh, no Sydney? Sydney. So you'd be a Sydney boy. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm a Sydney boy. Mm. And everyone mm. wants to talk about Jack Murphy. Yeah. So what did he do? Like had sex with his wife on camera and he's like some kind of alt-right guy or something? Yeah. So um, he he ran a masculinity club online where people yeah. could, uh, um, you know, could learn how to be masculine. Um, mm. And and then he was participating in the porn industry as well, and uh, he was okay. I, I'm going to go go play some uh, play some videos on um, Jack Murphy. So okay, I will, I will talk to you later, Elliot. Any any final words? Uh, anything that you want to discuss? No, no, you? no final words. Happy New Year, and make it a good one, Luke. And okay, everyone, man. make some resolutions. All right, All right okay, man. Take care. Bye. Okay, everyone okay. wants to talk about Jack Murphy, so. Let's see here. Here's one for you. Mm. You know, this show has a long history of uh, cucking uh, in the cucking sphere. Yeah. We began. That was the the first bad, the first actual, like, the first nail in Maddox's coffin Mm -hmm. was when he did that video about how cucking isn't inherently wrong. Yeah. And then came into the show. And I said, you didn't really put out a video saying there's nothing inherently wrong with cucking, did you? Mm-hmm. And he, with a blank, dumb face, said, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first. Here's here's an article I found. I don't know. I kind of get got sucked into a rabbit hole with this one. Um, here's where it started. Let me find you this girl. Yeah, this is how. I don't know. Maybe this one doesn't even matter. I don't even care anymore. Uh, this is an article from a guy named Jack Murphy. Mm-hmm. called Cultivating Erotic Energy mm-hmm. from a Surprising Source. Um, it's kind of a lot to explain to you, so I don't, tell me, let me know if any of it sounds interesting to you at all. Um, this guy, this guy with a giant beard, and I, I hate, like, performative men remaining men. Oh, yeah. Like, you're as it masculine is, as your beard is. It is performative. Like, Everything really, is performative. Uh, I have so much contempt for it. Um, let me pull him up. But... I, it seems just like a like a hobby, mm-hmm. like a way to play dress up. Like I'm gonna play dress up like mm-hmm. a big manly man, right? And that's fun. So whatever. Like I don't care. Uh, here's this guy, Jack Murphy. You see, he's got this uh, yeah white beard. Yeah, all the way down. Big beard. Yeah. yeah, it's like his identity. Uh, here is him on this talk show, uh, the quartering, the quartering center now. Now keep in mind, <laughs> I know, right? I hate everyone involved. I have to say that. So maybe it'll be funny, but maybe not. And then we'll do the, the Floydies giveaway. This is Sydney Watson. Uh, she seems like an insufferable bitch. Here is her posting um, a another right wing. Talking point. Uh, everyone remember when you could be a tomboy and it didn't mean, you know, what tomboy is? Of course. Okay. Everyone, she says, everyone remember when you could be a tomboy and it didn't mean you wanted to inject yourself with hormones. That's a big leap. Yeah. And she's just like what she thinks a tomboy is. I guess. I mean, when I, I think we're tomboy, Facebook, yeah, I'm sure that's her normal. That's how she feels like herself. Yeah. Please. Caked on make, so much makeup that she probably had to order another one in the middle of putting the foundation on. She probably ordered, she probably tried on six outfits to look like a quote unquote tomboy. tomboy. Bro. Yeah. Oh, do I look cute enough? Her sweater is the same color as her hat, which is brand yeah. new. The hat is brand fucking no, new. There's one thing I know about. If there's one thing I know about tomboys, it is uh, hats that hats that are, are still in their factory shape mm-hmm. that stand that stand completely upright. They match your fucking sweater. Perfectly. So it's not a sports team no. or a team that you played in high school with. Uh, the hallmark of a tomboy is wearing the hat incorrectly mm-hmm. so that it doesn't actually shield your eyes while mm-hmm. you're out outside well, playing, around and playing the fucking dirt. Yeah. yeah, how can they see your face and all the makeup? Classic and tomboys is, is yeah. as soon as they get inside, they flip that thing around like your wife pretending to help while you're moving and into she, a new house. She agonized over that nail polish color because it was like she was pink or purple or something. It's like no, it's gotta go with my matching hat and sweater. Yeah. The sweater is an ironic, I don't know, putting, is it a gamer meme? One thing I know, 
know about tomboys is um, their gamer meme Christmas, their their uh, their attention to pop culture. That's what the tomboy aficionados love about their tomboys is that they're obsessed with pop culture. Mm-hmm. Is it time for me to put on my my ironic Christmas sweater yet? She's being I'm a tomboy. She's trying to be. She's acting like something that she is not. Doesn't in mean, order in order to shit on the people. Shit on trans people. Which yeah. kind of was made me annoyed because they have enough problems already. And the last the last thing, like if you're gonna shit on trans people because they're, they're fucking around with kids too much, like all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of understand. If you have kids, I kind of understand where you're coming from. If you don't have kids, go kill yourself. But if you if you're just uh uh even bigger poser, yeah. right, right, right. Here comes Beardell McGee mm-hmm. having an alter having an altercation with this tomboy. Mm-hmm. On our podcast. Here we go. It all goes back to cucking, remember? Just the same chick? I think so. Uh, I don't know why it's not playing. Oh, either. I mean, you don't, need a, you don't need a political reason to act like a thirst trap online. No. If you want to post pictures, if you're feeling bad because you want attention, mm-hmm. just post a picture of yourself. You don't need to shit on trans people to do You don't need to shit on anyone to yeah, do it. She just wants to be political, too. Uh, here, this will get these pathetic, conser- these uh, thirsty, these down bad conservative guys. I'm going to shit on trans people mm-hmm. and put up a picture. I don't know why it won't play. Uh, Mr. Oh, there it is. Okay, sorry. Here you go. So she's reading a super chat to this uh, Captain right? Beard. Yeah. Okay. Okay, you got the volume. Yeah, okay. Mr. Dickenball said, "Could you please clear up the cuck article you wrote?" I am not going to talk about Again? this. Okay. And basically, you know what? Fuck you Whoa. for bringing this up right here and right now. Me? Why? Why are you doing this to me? I didn't know that. I didn't know what it was. Well, just use a little bit of fucking common sense. Sorry, apologies. Yeah. Fuck uh, you. Fuck you. Elizabeth, Heartfelt. Elizabeth, uh, does it seem like a serial killer to you? Yeah. What a psycho. Look. Yeah. What a fucking psycho. I think it's the same woman, Sydney. What's he so fucking scared Sydney of? Watson. Okay, so when people react as Jack Murphy reacted, yeah, that's generally part of reality, part of their past that they haven't come to terms with. So when you are in touch with your past and in touch with reality, you don't tend to react that way. So I'm sure there are going to be occasions when I lash out like that, and I'll always because I haven't you know, come to terms with reality. So we'll get to that because yeah. it might be – I read it. I found the article mm-hmm. that she's asking about. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's worth a read on the show. Well, it sounds like he's completely fine with being cocked, right? I mean, is that what he's afraid of? Sean, it's got to be. I mean, it's like... I think it's the same woman. Somebody tell me if that's not the same woman. Looked, I'll be embarrassed. I don't know. He looked, um, her face looked different, but who yeah. the fuck knows, dude? Who knows what fucking that picture was all I filtered was. and fucking... Somebody tell me in chat if it's the same. Okay, let's see what uh, J.F. Garapi has to say about the ballad of uh, John Goldman, Jack Murphy. Okay. Let's see. J.F. at uh, 1.5. So, yeah, Jack Murphy was running a masculinity club. Exposing some of the emotional problems that he suffers from, which seems to have taken a dramatic turn, uh, because this is a guy who appears okay, so... delivering a piece of internet lore with its fantastical creatures, its super chats, its podcasters, its dildos, sometimes showing up at unexpected places, including the rectum of a Manosphere podcaster. Sit tight. Be careful. I want you to be sitting on a flat surface tonight. Protect your rectums. We are about to review the life history of John Goldman, also known as Jack Murphy. And by the way, this is not me doxing him. Uh, his name is public. He has published him himself. He has published his name. He says in this text published on his own website, my real name <coughs> is John Goldman. See, Jack Murphy is not my legal name. So to be clear here, I'm not going to reveal any personal information. I'm just interested at what led to this grifter to rise uh, where he rose on the internet and at exposing some of the emotional problems that he suffers from, which seems to have taken a dramatic turn uh, because this is a guy who appears on Timcast. He, he blocked me on Twitter. He blocked me on Twitter when I mentioned, based on his statements that I've reviewed, that he seems to suffer from Stockholm Syndrome. He is very much defending He's defending his abusers, defending the woman who betray him. He's taking pleasure at the idea of being a cock, but it has taken a dramatic turn. One of his friends and a, a male member of his liminal order, a kind of male group, but 
as I would argue, what seems to be a kind of gatekeeping slash uh, may maybe even a Fed operation. I don't know, but it seems to be a bizarre group where he seeks to attract extremely deranged people, including this man, Denver mass shooting suspect paid to join the heteroflexible porn star Jack Murphy's alpha male forum before Spree. Lyndon McLeod has been uh, has been declared as the suspect in the shooting of Monday. <coughs> He is 47 years old. Uh, you can see him with his tattoos on his chest. And this is Jack Murphy. So we have some effect on the type of people we draw to our programs, to our video programs, to our monthly masculinity clubs. We have some effect on other people. So it's not necessarily a slam on Jack Murphy that this mass killer was a member of his program. But the type of people who watch our show it says something about us. The type of people that we attract says something about us. It's not definitive because we don't control other people, but it does suggest something about us. A, a kind of video that he had published of himself on the internet uh, doing certain sexual actions, uh, but you know, I'm just showing for now the photo uh, that, that only shows his upper body. Uh, on Monday, McLeod 47 allegedly killed five people in Denver <coughs> and nearby Lakewood and was then shot by police himself. McLeod died from the injuries he sustained from a female police officer after he opened fire at her. Authorities reported that McLeod went on a rampage across eight different locations, including tattoo shops and apartment complexes. I can understand a, a dissatisfied customer in the tattoo domain, but it doesn't, doesn't justify shooting. Val says, show with Fabry was good vibes. It's nice. It finally happened. So do people who get tattoos, are they just like people who don't have tattoos? No, generally speaking, people you get tattoos, have low impulse control. I think they're more likely to be mentally unstable. They're more likely to be criminally inclined. They're more likely to be low class. They're more likely to be you know, a negative influence. Happened and that he invited you for his first special. One moment. He's not the best with his wording, but there were good passages when you're too... Approaches teamed up to tackle on an issue, but also when you had points of contention. Yes, this afternoon I've been on the uh, Philip Fabry podcast, um, and it was great. He's a very intelligent guy. It was the first time I was talking with him, although I translated his book uh, for a member of our audience who decided to pay me for uh, doing so. And so, yes, it was a very good encounter. If you want to check on my gab, you can get the link to... Um, to my performance on Philip Fabry. By the way, join me on Entropy. It is the right place to send me your super chats tonight. It is the right. So I'm also on Entropy. You can send super chats and it's my favorite uh, super chat platform as well if you want to support the show. But when we associate with lower class, with more dangerous, with more mentally ill people and crowds, it's more likely that bad things happen to us. If we hang out in tattoo parlors, if we you know, hang out with people engaging in you know, self-destructive behavior like getting tattoos, it's far more likely then that bad things happen to us. If we hang out with good upstanding people, it's more likely that good things will happen to us. So good people will tend to make you feel good. Like a good crowd, a good group, a good friend will tend to elevate you, give you impetus to become more. And a bad crowd and bad people will make you feel bad and will tend to drag you down. And then the people you hang out with basically reflect you. And the crowd that you hang with will have a tremendous influence on where you go in life and the odds of really bad things happening to you. Like more bad things are going to happen to you if you hang out in tattoo parlors as opposed to a church or a synagogue. 
way to support the show, although you can also use the Super Chat system by clicking support on Odyssey. It's a great system. Uh, tonight, our survey on entropy is, do you trust the liminal order? Is that a group that inspires trust in you? We will do a full review of some interactions. Be- what started this whole thing around Jack Murphy? Is that Jack Murphy is a kind of rising star because he appears on the Tim Pool podcast, and he's presenting himself here. He's a rising star online because he has great guests. And so the the size of your show, generally speaking on YouTube, the thing that will most influence the size of your audience is who your guest is. Right? There are very few individual personalities who can carry a show just on their own. Here in a bizarre manner on Tim Pool, which led me very early without knowing anything about this guy's real name and past uh, as a porn star, I knew that there was something wrong with this guy. <coughs> what struck, struck me is this guy was presenting himself as a tough guy. He was presenting himself as kind of the American lumberjack look with the big beard, you know? And yet he was saying stuff that was extremely cucked. Like, I couldn't believe. He was saying uh, something along the lines of, he was defending the idea that forced vaccination of his children was okay because he wanted them to have some medal because they, they, would, they would be excluded from the soccer team if they didn't get the vaccine. And, and anyways, the judge in his family court case is controlling the issue, so he has no say. But it's like, if if you've been imposed something by a judge from family court, you can just say, look, it sucks. I'm totally against forced vaccination, but uh, I have no control. They will put me in jail if I if my kids are not vaccinated. So my kids are going to end up vaccinated, whether I want it or not. It's sad, but it's that way. He could have said something like this, and I wouldn't have uh, bat an eye. But what he was doing when I watched this show, it was back a few months ago on Timcast, he was defending it. He was like, you know, uh, Tim Pool... Uh, it's justifiable to to be giving the vaccines to my children because I want them to have their soccer medal and they will be excluded from the team. And I was like, if you're forced to do something, why would you stand in defense of it? Why why would you, in other words, praise your abusers? If your wife, your ex-wife has forced you to do so, if your family court has forced you to do so, that's disgusting. You just say, it's disgusting, I'm against it. But no, Jack Murphy was making a defense of it. This is where I realized Jack Murphy suffers from Stockholm Syndrome. He's getting abused and he likes it. And what we would eventually find out is just how deep I was right, just how deep it goes that JF, that that uh, that Jack Murphy enjoys. Uh, I see Quebecois Foie Gras here. I'm going to have him as a moderator. Welcome to the team. Quebecois Foie Gras has been a moderator, of course, on YouTube forever. But now you are on Odyssey. Uh, welcome, uh, Quebecois Foie Gras. And we're moving to Odyssey for most of the shows now. Uh, <clears throat> I realized that Jack Murphy was incapable of understanding I'm getting abused. I'm, I'm having force being used against me, and I should at least denunciate it. Or if you, if you don't have the balls to denunciate it, just at least don't advocate for it. So I knew that this guy likes to be, he likes it dirty. He likes it when he's getting abused or betrayed. And eventually we would find out that he's actually written text about loving that kind of stuff in his sexual kinks. But the whole, this whole series of discoveries comes from an event of a super chat. And this is where, this is where I say people don't fully understand the, the revolution that super chats are on the internet and how we, the blood sports people, at the beginning, we use this new feature of the internet to make people more accountable. Super chats are how you can know that a public personality has to answer to your stuff. And it showed here in a random way in the sense that the super chat was essentially read by Sidney Watt. So sexual preferences and sexual kings do say a lot about a person, like person who wants to be abused, that says something about his character. We all have a love map or an eroticism map. And that map is formed in our childhood. And it is a snapshot of our personality. So I remember I dated one woman who ran her own company, but in the bedroom, she liked to be treated like a whore. Only in the bedroom. Outside of the bedroom, she was a very powerful woman. 
And then I know for years of my life, I had all these erotic rage fantasies where I was this incredibly powerful man. And that was, even I could see that, that was obviously my compensation for feeling powerless. And so particularly in childhood, eroticized rage develops out of your, your anger towards an opposite sex parent. And so those who feel powerless, their erotic fantasies will tend to be about having power. Those who feel oppressed by how much power they have, they'll often tend towards erotic fantasies of being dominated. That's one who didn't know what it was about, but it's an example of the audience directly impacting the series of events that will change the internet forever. So that was the segment here about 10 days ago. Please clear up the cock article you wrote. <laughs> will you be clearing up the cock article you wrote? Sonny Watson has no idea what this thing is, so she's not uh, she's not mischievous in, in doing so. She, she's just reading a super chat. And look at how Jack would answer. I am not going to talk about Again? this. Okay. And basically, you know what? F*** you me? for bringing this up right here and right now. Why, why are you doing this to me? I didn't know that. I didn't know what it was. Well, just use a little bit of f***ing common sense. Sorry, apologies. <laughs> when you read the super chat, you cannot know about everything that it is about. I mean... Jack Murphy could have said there, ah, I'm not answering this. And that would be it. But you can see that this guy has some kind of a violence problem. It's like, you are faced with a lady. First, it's a lady. She she invited you to her show. She's giving you exposure. You're a grifter. You're, you're draining some of that exposure. At least be respectful to her. It's like, she, she has nothing to do in this. She's reading something from the audience. This is the people wanting to know. And Jack Murphy has this issue where he turns it into an emotional issue against Sidney Watson. Of course, this has been commented plenty on in the last uh, few days and weeks. Jeez. Yeah, you heartfelt <laughs> he keeps going fuck you heart heartfelt <coughs> what nothing i'm just guy i literally was just coughing it's just an inconvenient cough <laughs> <laughs> and now Sidney watson has answered and says look at no point this guy told us uh that we that this subject was off limit because then jack murphy went on tim pool to defend himself from his reaction there and of course he says i apologize i regret i shouldn't have acted that way but they brought a subject that i said was off limit now the problem is Sidney watson and she has even published uh she has even published uh, a she has published a video essentially of the interaction and after the interaction and after the show uh, and they are guaranteeing to us that at no point was there a question with Jack Murphy that we would avoid the subject of cookery Th this was not mentioned to them at all so she was honestly just reading a um a super chat that she didn't know what were the consequences. Now, the cock article was exposed by the quartering so we have a full copy of it. Let's have a look. Go away says what is the cock article? <laughs> We will get there. GNG sends 10 bucks. Thank you so much for the new Odyssey Super Chat system. I love this. I can't wait to see if they will respect my demand of stacking the Super Chat and just sending them to me once a month. Uh, thank you so much for supporting the show. The article is from October 9th, 2015 by Jack Murphy, cultivating erotic energy from a surprising source. Today, sh should I read this with a deep manosphere voice? A deep masculine voice? Today, I sent my adoring, loyal, hot young girlfriend of two years. Young girlfriend of two years. To have, okay. <laughs> for a moment, I was like, is your girlfriend two years old, Jack Murphy? No, no. She's been his girlfriend for two years. Uh, my adoring, loyal, hot young girlfriend of two years to have sex with a stranger from Tinder. She is currently at his apartment, checked in with me via text, and is presumably sucking and fucking her way to a good time. I'm alone writing. Couldn't be happier. Now, before you write me off as another salon.com freak who wants to be a cuckold or some kind of spineless beta undermail, what, what that, it's funny that you bring this up. It's exactly what I would conclude. <laughs> hear me out. <laughs> he uses the hear me out. <laughs> he uses the hear me out uh, unironically. Thank you so much, Jan, for sending me 100 bucks. Uh, one, of, one of the big influences, and you guys should thank Jan, because one of the big influences that made me make the jump to Odyssey 
is uh, that Jan told me he would send me a hundred bucks a super chat per week. And I was like, well, with, with 400 bucks a month, even if I lose some money on the ads and the YouTube revenue, this is viable. So if you like the new format of the show and the fact that I can engage with about anything on this show, thank Jan, because he made it happen just out of his shoulder work. Just straight up did it. This has been a long road. My manhood is intact and my dick is hard. Bro, your dick is hard because you should be with your girlfriend. You shouldn't be having your dick there's nothing inherently moral or righteous about your dick being hard. Your dick can get hard for all sorts of immoral and bad reasons. Hard when she's with another guy. The whole biological idea here is that your dick is hard for your girlfriend. You should not be seeking pleasure in her having sex with another man. I'm almost 40. Years ago, after my divorce from my blue pill marriage, I found Rossi, Rouge V, and eventually Rational Med. Along the way, I made friends with Cernovich and we came up together in the game. I've learned and practiced Tantra, various elements of the BDSM lifestyle, and just about every angle, pun intended, for male-female relations. Of course, we would eventually learn that he has not just tried male-female relations. In fact, he has a porn star web live streaming career where he does homosexual actions. Some of it has been recorded in a torrent. But for now, it was male-female relations. From experience, effort, and education, I've become an expert. I learned over time how my natural disposal is to be dominant. For submissive women, I'm practically an ideal. I've had sex slaves, little girls, and tied them up. Tied them all up. Feminists seek me out to fuck them like the patriarchy. And yet I've just sent my 15-year junior girlfriend to bang Matt from Tinder. Now, again, this is bizarre phrasing, bro. Is she 15 years old? Or no, it's like, no, she's 15 years younger than him. But when you talk about these subjects, you want to be extremely clear. <coughs> Yes, Quebecois foie gras. Uh, in order to have the pre-show chat open, says Val, JF needs to put up an unscheduled video. Otherwise, with a scheduled one, you only get a pre-show chat five minutes before the start. I've made the decision that <coughs> the feeling of family that we have here chatting is important enough that it's better to do unscheduled shows. That way we get, uh, that way we get uh, chats before it starts. So, and yet I've just sent my 15-year-old junior girlfriend. Terrible phrasing here. He, he, okay, your girlfriend is 15 years younger than you. Years of being in a dead marriage... <coughs> Sexless, undesired, unappreciated, made me question myself, made me question my manliness. It made me question my worth. Bro, this is not a reason to send your girlfriend to Matt from Tinder. I was emasculated in couples therapy. The 60-year-old shriveled arbiter proclaimed my sexual urges unreasonable, that my wife had no obligation nor even a passing concern for the existential angst. My Okay, if you want to know more about John Goldman and uh, Jack Murphy, you can just uh, Google it. Lots of, lots of video... On that, let's uh, check in here with uh, JF Live, talking to uh, Richard Spencer. What was the name of this big thing? Uh, a case of lumberjack aesthetic pushed too far, maybe. Uh, the heteroflexible porn star Jack Murphy ends up being identified as John Goldman, and uh, as it is tradition on the internet, is is past uh, gay porn resurfaces. <laughs> And the most amazing thing is that this guy had had an interaction with you back in something like 2017. Do you remember that interaction on Twitter? I, I don't remember the, exactly what it was, at least in my memory, which might not be perfect. He was live streaming the anti-Syria missile strike protest. Was he not? Uh, I don't remember that. What I've seen okay. from a tweet of him was that he was tweeting at you and saying you and the Mad Dimension, who was uh, the, the guy handling the Unite the Right rally. Oh, Jason Kessler. Yeah, Jason Kessler. Right. He was telling you to... Fight me in a ring, and I will give $5,000 to a uh, charity of your choice if the two of you can fight two-on-one -on -one against me. That's what he was tweeting at you. And your answer had been, Jack, get a life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I didn't accept that 
proposal because uh, I'm sure multiple dildos and hetero. It gets slippery on the ring. It gets slippery. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. Lots of oil. And he he had more in mind than uh, I was willing to uh, tolerate. So yes, it's a good thing that horrifying fight never happened. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't actually, I mean, look, it's fine to chuckle, but I I actually don't want to just jump on this character digging up stuff from his past, his very recent past. I would say, I, I remember him tweeting out, this was years ago or whatever. I mean, once you reach middle age, two years is like two weeks, basically. I mean, you're, you're, don't give me this nonsense. We're not in high school. Um, you did this very recently. <laughs> uh, but I, again, I actually don't want to jump on it. It's, it's probably, we'd probably get more views if we did just delve into all of it. But um, I, I think it's, it's better to look at the big picture and see what this represents. Uh, I do think that Jack Murphy is typical, paradigmatic for a, tip, a certain type of alt-light grifter. Um, first off, just the aesthetics, the, I'm going to grow this huge beard and this beard is all you need to know. Like I'm your masculinity guru now because of this thing, you know, look at that, you know, I haven't shaved in a few days. Like maybe I could, you know, 999, I'll teach you how to be a man folks. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just, I, I mean, again, not everyone who has a beard is like that, but it, it, it's just pretty obvious what he's doing. It's a very shallow appeal to something. I don't know what it is. Uh, but also just the name change. I mean, I, I don't, I've, as I get older, I tolerate less and less people who use these phony names and anonymity. It's, it's a way of evading responsibility. His name is John Goldman, I believe. Yes. Uh, he, uh, that is who he is. He's not Irish, in fact. Um, and uh, he's Jewish. Take, make of that what you will, but it, it is what it is. Everything about it is this fraud. And um, he was on Chatterbait, but then he went to a much more profit- profitable version of Chatterbait, which is online grifting, which is telling your audience what they want to hear. Now, again, I've never uh, performed on Chatterbait or viewed it. Uh, I've never viewed pornography on the internet. I didn't know it existed, in fact. <laughs> I've heard it does. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, from what I understand, it's not just a porn you're, you're interacting with the performer so you're you're like you know call me daddy or do this to yourself or do whatever and you're pleasing your audience you're you're the, they're the piper you're they're playing the tune you're you're doing a dance for them that is a perfect metaphor for the alt-light um which has as a whole i would say contributed absolutely nothing to discourse and in the case of someone i don't know that much about jack murphy what he said but in the case of someone like tim pool has has really contributed less than nothing that is negativity to the discourse and in the sense that he picks up on news items he misconstrues them misrepresents them and to a point where you are actually dumber after listening to an hour of him talk because he is always wrong he is all he if he gets anything correct or represents reality it's it's by accident he is absolutely wrong he is going to tell an audience that he is milking what they want to hear and he's going to misrepresent reality and so he is negatively affecting discourse he's not even wrong because everyone gets it wrong I, I have gotten it wrong plenty of times, but you know that I'm at least approaching it from a rational perspective, and thus we can have a conversation. If someone is approaching a problem from a perspective of fraud, then you don't even want to talk to them, you know? I mean, it, yeah. There's no point in, in even having a discussion because it's bullshit. Uh, I, you know, I think from the scientific community, that's where that phrase comes from. It's not even wrong because if you're wrong, if your hypothesis or thesis or, or argument is wrong, oh, we can learn from that. We can build on it. If it's not even wrong, it's just you're just, at, you're just polluting the common square. You're, you're polluting discourse. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, it's gotten very bad. This type of stuff used to be on the margins. It is now huge where Tim Pool has bigger numbers than CNN. Tim Pool is, uh, you know, a, a huge person who is misinforming countless millions. And it, it actually is a real social problem. Um, whether you want to ban him or not, I mean, I'll leave that up to you. But it, at least even if you're a total free speech, absolutist libertarian, you, you will admit that this is a real serious issue. Um, infotainment like this is a really serious issue. And uh, it's depressing. Uh, Jack Murphy um, was uh, doing something similar in the sense that he was kind of being a masculinity guru. He was basically taking a problem in society. We have a screwed up society relationship between the sexes is symptomatic of that 
screwed up nature of our world. And he was kind of grifting off that, riding the wave, kind of telling you about how feminists are all bitches and sluts. And this is how you be a real man. I'm going to help you out. These are the tricks to picking up. It's, it's a long-term grift that you're just riding a wave of discontent in order to offer some kind of personal satisfaction to people. And so it is, it is chatterbait. It is, there is very little difference between what he was doing. Now, there's an interesting twist in the sense that there, there's reason to believe, I don't know if this has been confirmed yet, there's reason to believe that a recent shooter who has killed five people and wrote about killing them and then actually did it, um, and apparently also killed um, his competitors in the tattoo game or something like this. I yes. mean, it's just... So it's, it, yes, it, this it has been confirmed. There, there's, this has been confirmed yesterday, and there's even okay. new elements today. This person who did the shooting also contacted via Twitter Eric Weinstein. Yes, Eric Weinstein. <laughs> Eric Weinstein tweeted out, law enforcement only. I have been... I mean, it's just... I don't even know if that... That almost seems genuine. It's such a weird thing to do. Like, you can call the FBI, by yes. the way. I have... I, I don't... Okay, get back to the minute. Just want to catch up on the chat. So, uh, Luke, what are your thoughts on Ethan Ralph? I think uh, Ethan Ralph is a good host of, of live streams. He's fair. And he also has obviously made plenty of bad decisions in his life. He was arrested once and he's made some other bad decisions. So apparently Ethan Ralph has some legal issues coming up. You know, not surprising. Uh, Ethan, Ethan has made some you know, poor choices. But uh, as far as a host, he, he is fair. Uh, Luke, a few of the charges against Ron Jeremy have been dropped as the trial starts in the coming months. I'd still expect uh, Ron to be convicted. He's been held in jail since, what, the last 18 months. Should an Orthodox Jew refrain from wishing others a Happy New Year? No. Uh, but wishing others a Merry Christmas be more of a, of a problem because by saying Merry Christmas, you are essentially seem to be affirming that Jesus is the Christ. Looking at, uh, oh yeah, the day is celebrated for the circumcision of Jesus. I didn't realize that. Now I'm not back in LA. I am in Queensland. I found all the streams on the Jack Murphy thing to be insipid. Yeah. Duvid says it's easier to repent by moving to a new place. Even if a person changes, many or most people will remember you as the same person. So go to some new place to change. Yeah, that's a very Jewish saying. Change your place, change your luck. Yeah, JF did do a strong show on 10 reasons why Odyssey is better than YouTube. Yeah, feel free to send me any links. Let's go back here to Richard talking with JF. Oh, I don't mean this. I, I know everyone loves to call me a fed, so they'll probably clip this and take from it. But I have received uh, what are somewhat credible death threats. You know, like someone will leave, get a hold of my number, leave a really toxic voicemail, or uh, I'll see something on um, something about where someone talks about my whereabouts and then we'll do that. I have reported that to the FBI. It takes about 10 minutes. You, you get them on, you just, Yeah, you have to read out the URL to them, which is kind of funny, like, uh, but it's like twitter.com slash GX50. Um, but yeah, that, that's what you do. You don't tweet it out. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if he was trying to get attention. Anyway, I'm dilating too much on this. And uh, chat says, in general, shouldn't you try to please your audience if you want an audience? Well, it depends on how much you're giving up, how much you're sacrificing, whether leading people in a bad direction, then their other values more important than pleasing your audience. But for success, yeah, pleasing your audience is a good idea, but it also depends on who you want your audience to be. So I'd rather have a high quality, low audience. So I, I'm happy to come on here and say all sorts of things that absolutely everybody who's chatting disagrees with. 
because it's more important to me the quality of my audience and the size. It's also more important to me that to whatever extent I have an effect on anyone, that it's an effect in a neutral or a positive direction rather than a bad effect. It's it's a lot easier to attract a big audience, you know, putting out crap. So yeah, pleasing an audience makes sense from a business perspective or a career perspective. But in pleasing an audience, you can so degrade your own value, you can so sell your own soul, you can lead people in a bad direction that you might have people going out and committing mass shootings who, who are members of your stream or who are contributing to your stream. So yeah, pleasing your audience certainly in the short term is a better way to make money, but you can cost yourself so much credibility and cost your, your name and reputation so deeply that in the long term it may well turn out to be poor decision. So the Denver shooter tried to get on the same podcast that uh, Moldbug and Nick Land were on. All right, let's get back here. I am positive that there were police and I mean, I don't know for a fact, but I uh, am all but certain that there were police and FBI investigations of Charlottesville. I've never been charged with criminal activity. Um, and they have looked into it. So I, I don't know what to say. Okay, so according to Art Bell on Graftrion, Tim Dillon earns $200,000 a month. So 39,400 people pay him. Wow. And then the number two show is True Anon Podcast, creating the only anti-pedophile podcast, fighting the sicko elites, 22,000 pay, total of 90,000 a month. Interesting. Okay, I'll get back to uh, Richard Spencer talking to J.F. Garopi here. Hey, this this just is this kind of like the plaintiff's counsel just kind of won't let something go. And um, the fact is the entire right has moved on. I mean, they're bigger fish to fry than... Um... Okay, I'll come back to this a little later. So my main topic supposedly for this stream is uh, JF saying that this study changed his view on, on all vaccines, which I thought was absurd because the study was so yes. tendentious. So I don't know. Uh, okay, yes, it seems that I'm live, but you have to click on play. It's like the, the window doesn't automatically start. It's bizarre. Anyways, I tried to change some settings, so we're going to test them with Odyssey tonight, a little higher quality than they... So I looked up this study. The Odyssey main streamer as my main it. channel. I don't want to become in trouble. Uh, by not having the license, so I, I just took these new songs that I paid for. I have a little contract. I think I'm going to print it, and I'm going I'm to put it here. The little contract that says, Jeff, you can use this whenever you want, forever. This is a den of misinformation. Will they start going after us? Uh, we'll see. Uh, NDBL says, I see his face, but it's buffering. Uh, Dark Urza says, Streamlabs chat users are visible at a time. Uh, yes, there are, uh, there are some... So that we can benefit from the freedom of speech. Oh, the freedom of speech. I love it. Are you on mobile, Justet? On PC, I see plenty. It takes the whole height of the page on the right side. But there was a problem with the verification process. But today, I think it should be enabled. So that being said, Entropy remains my favorite platform for... Come on, JF. Get to the study, mate. Outside of the COVID question, because the COVID stuff... Although it's the COVID stuff that has changed my view on this. I used to be kind of neutral with respect to vaccines, but the COVID stuff made me realize just how little work is being done properly in the vaccine business in testing them. And 
that's absurd to say how little work is being done in the vaccine business and testing them. Enormous amounts of work are being done here. And ultimately, we don't have the long-term studies with properly separated, randomly controlled, randomized. Yes, that's true. We don't. And so that that is is a criticism. But on the other hand, to do those long-term studies, you would have to have people do without the benefits of vaccines. So I recognize that's a legitimate prompt, but we have no evidence to believe that vaccines cause long-term problems. What we do have evidence for is that in some cases with some vaccines, there are short-term problems. Is controlled groups. And therefore, there is not a clear question. There, there is not a clear answer about whether or not you are endangering uh, people, children, as they grow into adults and eventually as they become adults. There is simply not a solid study out there. And the studies that are there that are acceptable in my view, they... Well, we don't have any evidence that uh, vaccines cause any harm long-term. So some vaccines have caused some short-term harm. ...seem to tend toward the idea that a lot, an important and significant part of the childhood diseases may be favored. And Okay, so this is J.S. Change. So he used to be neutral on vaccines used to have no strong opinion one way or another, whether they were good or bad. Now he's switched to essentially an anti-vax position. ...caused by vaccines. I'll show you the, uh, the study that has led me to this conclusion, which has totally rever not reverted because I was kind of neutral. I, I didn't know what to think about vaccines, but it has definitely put me in the camp of, wow, what if, what if we're breaking brains here? What if we are exposing children to potential attack by other diseases? Uh, all of this on the cover of saving them from diseases that some, some of them we haven't seen <laughs> since many decades. So what is the, the study that uh, JF is, is basing, basing this on? And uh, here we go. So Dr. Angela Rasmussen, she's a virologist. So this is the study that JF's talking about. It's always really credible when an anti-vaxxer, who is the Brian Hooker here, he's a biologist, uh, points to a paper as conclusive data, breaking science news using a screenshot of the abstract that cuts off the name of the journal and doesn't link to the study itself. Here's why this is disingenuous. So if this paper is such a conclusive slam dunk, why wouldn't you want your audience to go see the data in all its vaccine-damning glory? Well, someone has gone see this paper, and there are a lot of problems with the study design, the analysis, and the sampling. Then there's the journal it's published in, Sage Open Medicine. This open access journal does put papers through peer review, but it's not very stringent. So this publishing model relies on authors paying for their papers to be published. Some open access publishers are very good and some are not. But uh, Sage has a very low impact factor, suggesting that a lot of the papers published aren't cited much and aren't earth-shattering scientific revelations. So the open access model requires authors paying so their work can be freely shared. This is good in principle, and there are many rigorous open access journals. There are also some that care more about the publication fee than peer review, like this particular publication is kind of on the border. The authors of this study also have credibility problems. Neither have backgrounds in epidemiology, biology, or medicines, besides their own clout chasing in anti-vax circles. Brian Hooker has cast himself as a CDC whistleblower, based on some flawed reanalysis he did on the MMR vaccine. He's a chemical engineer, currently has a faculty position at a fundamentalist Christian university with no med school. Then Neil Miller is a journalist who writes 
bad anti-vaccine propaganda and directs an anti-vaccine institute. So in short, be very suspicious of post-touting studies, even with a high number of study subjects, when they are presenting in such a misleading way. And so this is the paper that's completely changed uh, JF's, JF's mind about vaccines. Kids. And some of them are just very small infections throughout the country. So we're doing all this. We're doing all this prophylaxis for potentially uh, not much. And also, it, it, on the other side, we may be causing some something bad. My awesome channel says, Jeff, have you read Robert Kennedy's book? Curious of your thoughts if you have. I Someone talked to me about it in a super chat. I... I <clears throat> I didn't read it, but I've seen the interview of uh, Kennedy on Tucker Carlson, and it was great. I really so. In short, JF's just gone full anti-vax, which is kind of weird for for a scientist, right? This is a guy with a PhD in neuroscientist. You wouldn't, wouldn't and first, wouldn't yeah. That. I mean, look, it's more my fun. view of Charlottesville before I. If um, legal and financial consequences and so on, it will kind of crush you. And, um, you know, look, I don't, this case has never been truly fair. It has never, um, has already pled guilty uh, to criminal uh, charges. So, sense that uh, we watched, you know, dozens of videos. I mean, I, I don't know how many hours, dozens of, at least an hour or two, the jury. Okay, this is really psychopaths who really have a, there's a real disconnect between their emotional life Bye. and their rational life. And it's it's a very uh very sad thing. Yeah, but I remember that interview with Ellie. And I actually like Ellie. Um she's a I I say that in all honesty. She she's she actually is a nice person. We have good conversations. I think she was interviewing me and she wanted I was being self-critical of the alt-right, of myself, of everything. And she just kept wanting me to like admit guilt, even though it's not a criminal trial. And it just becomes kind of like literally what do you want me to say like what what just tell me what you want me to say i'm going you're a you're a journalist you're not a police officer you're not a lawyer you are going to get a response from me i'm not spinning you it was extremely frustrating and at first i was like ah i look like mean and arrogant and kind of nasty or i'm losing my cool or whatever but then i kind of thought about it and i was like yeah that's good I think it was a great interview and i think yeah. what the problem here is that she she couldn't do what the interviewer should always do which is and the chat says luke if not vaccines what do you think is behind autism epidemic well I think what's primarily behind autism epidemic, and this is fairly well established, people have become better at diagnosing it. So we have more, we have more tests, we have more education, people are more on alert, health professionals are more on alert for autism, and so they become much more effective at diagnosing if you've it. Got, if you've got something good, you give up at some point, you kind of respect a little circle of your guest. But she yeah. wanted to go further and get exactly the quote that she wanted to begin with. When in fact, you had given her an insight into your own mind, kind of a regret or, or kind of a review yeah. of a rethinking of how you had been involved in all this. And it wasn't enough for her. And it was all with respect to the trial, of course, which was another big event of 2021, uh, yeah. which has ended up finding liable, you including other defendants. Uh, you're yes. on the path to an appeal with this? Well, um, we're still that that appeal will be in months from now. Uh, we're still in post trial motions, which have been delayed. So um, this is going to be a longer process. So um, I don't know what's going to happen with post trial motions. I mean, uh, I want to speak only in general terms here. So I don't um, pin myself down on anything. But uh, the 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 verdict was rather incoherent. And perhaps fatally so. I mean, the what the plaintiffs were going for um, was 19, uh, Section 1985 and 1986 from U.S. Code 142. And that was a hung jury on those counts. Um, I was held liable under a non-conspiratorial non account of engaging in um, racial animosity of some sort, which strikes me as rather odd uh, in the sense that uh, we watched, you know, dozens of 
videos. I mean, I, I don't know how many hours, dozens of at least an hour or two, the jury watch rather, of videos of, say, the Torchlight March and all of the aftermath. And there is no video at all of me engaging in any sort of violence towards anyone. Um, now, you know, say what you will about Christopher Cantwell. He's, he's in a different situation. Uh, he was engaged in pushing, shoving, pepper spraying, etc. Now, again, I'm not uh, assuming anything on that. It's just, it's just a fact. Um, but I'm apart from that. And that's a non-conspiratorial charge. So it seems rather odd. Um, and then there was a kind of um, basic, basic state conspiracy charge um, of unlawful acts. And then there, of course, there's the issues with James Fields. James Fields, effectively, it was no contest uh, with him. He um, has already pled guilty uh, to criminal uh, charges. So that was just kind of a fait accompli with him. Uh, but as is clear by the trial, I mean, the plaintiffs had years to collect evidence and, and engage in an investigation. Um, it is very true that James Fields tweeted at me. Um, it's also true that hundreds of reporters and commentators have tweeted at me. Thousands of average citizens have tweeted at me. Uh, they were not able to present any evidence that we have ever communicated whatsoever. Um, I, so I don't know. I think it's a very, yeah, I, I think we're going to have a lot of, um, there, there, I, I, if, if this verdict stands, I will absolutely appeal. I'll leave it at that. I'm being a little bit circumspect with my words just because I don't want to pin myself down, but I think people can generally imagine um, what I would do. But I, I do think the whole thing was rather strange and incoherent. I don't know if the plaintiffs, I mean, with regard to 85 and 86, they would have an option to retry this thing. Um, so I don't know if they want to do that. Um, it was a rather expensive endeavor on their part. Uh, they do have that right. Um, I, I just, I don't know what it holds in this. I learned a tremendous amount um, going through this. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, I'll just leave it at that. I, I've kind of got into a point where, um, you know, if you think about it too much, if you worry about consequences too much, if um, legal and financial consequences and so on, it will kind of crush you. And, um, you know, look, I don't, this case has never been truly fair. It is never like multiple plaintiffs themselves testified that I did not harm them, that they did not recognize me or did not see me at any point. And so it just gets to a point of like, all right, your counsel, you guys want to go after me. You want to bankrupt me, you want to harm me, you want to tie me up in knots, etc. Well, okay, I get that. Uh, but um, I would rather move on. So if you are prominent, a prominent uh, person in an event that attracts people who then engage in criminal activity, you're going to pay a big price for it. So you, start, you agree to speak an event, and there's a good likelihood that you know, antisocial, criminally inclined people will show up then you're taking your life and your well-being and other people's lives and their well-being. Um, you're, you're, you're putting yourself and others at great risk. I mean, I think this is the upshot from Charlottesville. So however, however you're thinking and whatever noble ideas you may have, it was obvious from the get-go that this, this event was going to attract a lot of antisocial people. It was going to attract a tremendous potential for violence. And so you then will pay a big price if violence is committed at an event where you are the main speaker, which is Richard Spencer's position. He was the big, most uh, publicized speaker at this event. Then you're going to be held accountable for things that happen at that event. Um, I have not been criminally charged at all. I am positive that there were police and I mean, I don't know for a fact, but I uh, am all but certain that there were police and FBI investigations of Charlottesville. I've never been charged with criminal activity um, and they have looked into it. So I, I don't know what to say. This this just is this kind of like the plaintiff's counsel just kind of won't let something go. And um, the fact is the entire right has moved on. I mean, they're bigger fish to fry than um, endlessly relitigating Charlottesville. So anyway, yes. that's what it is. It's a big thing. 
You know, it's a big dark cloud over my head. It, it is what it is, but I'll survive. Uh, I really liked what you had said, I believe, in your concluding statement, uh, because someone was retranscribing it, and you were saying, essentially, people wanted a case against extremism, and it just fell on you there because it was the biggest symbol. The left wanted to cement, essentially, a, a view in history that some justice has been given against a supposed aggression, when, in fact, yes. uh, normally in a legal system, in a, in a healthy legal system, you wouldn't think... Well, prior to Hellgate, the alt-right was known as a bunch of merry pranksters. So after Hellgate and then after Charlottesville and after the mosque killings in Christchurch and after the the mass killings at a Walmart in El Paso, you know, the alt-right has become known as a bunch of Nazis. And Richard Spencer played a huge role in that change in perception among the public. To expect someone to be responsible because he's a leader and some of his fans may do harmful stuff, but that doesn't mean that the leader is responsible. But they used all possible biases and all possible bizarre legal principles to get to there. And you were talking about how, you know, in, in the past year, you've been mostly a father and enjoying uh, your life uh, at the personal level and getting out of the, the public, uh, the kind of public trouble around Charlottesville. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that we all thought that we were we were winning and that this movement was moving somewhere. And I was being totally honest. Now, granted, I was being a bit bombastic or uh, egomaniacal, you could say. Uh, but I was being totally honest in the sense that my view of Charlottesville before I went there and during was, this is the next stop on the Spencer tour. I, I mean, I did not, the, I did many, many appearances. No one has accused me of conspiring to harm anyone during these appearances. It's just mm -hmm. this one, you know. And obviously I did not, you know, I thought that I, this could be this kind of breakthrough online movement that was entering the world of public protest and display and and so on activism that this could be a vehicle that i could use to promote myself i mean i know that sounds arrogant but that's i'm sorry guys I mean, you, you, that was what you were doing back then i mean you were heading a movement that's also what you say to the cnn journal right so he went to charlottesville to head a movement and to promote himself so when you promote yourself when you try to advance yourself there are all sorts of possibilities of destroying yourself Right. It's not like when you do an action that that only has, you know, one inevitable consequence that you foresee. So when I do a live stream or whenever we act publicly, we open up all these unforeseen possibilities. But the more in touch with reality you are, the more in touch you are with your own frailty and vulnerability, then the less likely you are to get into this sort of trouble. Richard Spencer went to Charlottesville in part to promote himself, and as a result of Charlottesville, he did tremendous damage to himself, to the cause that he believed in, and to to others. Uh, are you are you thinking of possible future political action, or are you done with this? Well, I don't I don't think much is possible. I mean, I don't I don't think there's much to be gained by political action, and there is a lot to be lost. And I also just have a very uh, bitter attitude towards alt-right activism so that could also go for live streaming all right you're going to live stream on controversial issues uh there's not a lot to be gained and there's a tremendous amount to be lost so live streaming on, on controversial issues for most people is going to be self-destructive some people can pull it off most people it will be self-destructive so how I try to operate is take into consideration the effect that my words will have on varied people, people I meet in a workplace, people I meet in synagogue, people I meet on public transport, people I meet walking down the street, you know, people I may live next to, my, my friends, my family, my acquaintances. I try to take into account what effect will my words have on different people. 
And so then I learned to phrase things in ways that reduce the chances of gratuitous, needless offense and maximize the chances of people from varied backgrounds understanding or having sympathy for what I'm saying, or at least not be outraged. So I have a personality tendency that really enjoys outraging people, that enjoys stirring people up. And I, in my live streams, I try to tamp that down because that could be incredibly destructive for me and for others. <laughs> no, I, just, I'm just to trigger me. <laughs> yes, just solely to trigger you. Yeah. <laughs> so, any chat says, Luke, any thoughts on the Jelaine Maxwell verdict? Uh, it seemed like a fair, fair verdict to me. It seemed like the, the right verdict. And, uh, I will not shed tears if she spends decades in prison. All right. Uh, now, one other thing I wanted to talk to you. So, yeah, J.F. Garapi has also moved almost completely away from alt-right activism. Like he has completely sanitized his, his public work until the last couple of weeks when he started going live on Odyssey and getting, getting more into distant sphere. But uh, J.F. Garapi voluntarily stepped away from alt-right activism for the past three years. There is a movement of parents in the U.S. fighting CRT in school boards, and it is said that they could sustain a red wave in the U.S. in 2022. And I can't help but think when I look at these parents yelling at the school boards in their local places that they are essentially adopting talking points that would have been radical Richard Spencer talking points perhaps in 2017. And here you have these normies going around. The yeah, I don't think that's true at all. So anti-critical race theory seems to be a winning issue. Cultural, cultural war issues seem to be a winning issue for Republicans right now. And you can see that because the news media and people on the left have so much disdain for talking about the culture war. So why do why do our ruling elites, why do our media elites, why do people on the left have so much disdain for talking about culture war issues right now? Because these are losing issues for the left right now. It appears that the Republicans are going to do very well in the midterm elections. So I was just asked for my my predictions for 2022. And so I think uh, Republicans will win back control of the House and the Senate. And I think there will be a growth in in right-wing media, like the equivalent of, of Rumble. So there was a big article in The New Yorker just came out, Dan Bongino and the big business of returning Trump to power. Here, here are some excerpts from this article. The history of broadcasting is replete with figures who play a combative character on the air but shed the pose when they leave the studio. Dan Bongino is not among them. In Bongino's world, add as little that Trump's claims of rampant voter fraud were dismissed by his top appointees at the Department of Justice and Homeland Security, as well as by federal and state judges, to the true believer the lack of solid evidence simply confirms how well hidden the rigging was. In the study of conspiracy theories, this is known as self-sealing. The theory mends holes in its own logic. A corrupted intelligence community in conjunction with a corrupt media will eat this country like a cancer from the inside out, Bongino told his audience. This is why I'm really hoping Donald Trump runs in 2024. Several months immersed in American talk radio, and you'll come away with a sense that the violence of January 6th was not the end of something, but the beginning. I think that's a fair appraisal. A year after Trump, when, once you make the case for massive voter fraud, you are removing all moral constraints from people who believe you. 
A year after Trump supporters laid siege to the U.S. Capitol, some of his most influential champions preparing the ground for his return, and they dominate a media terrain that attracts little attention from their opponents. As liberals argue over the algorithm at Facebook and ponder the disruptive influence of TikTok, radio remains a colossus. This is important. So for every hour that Americans listen to podcasts in 2021, they listen to six and a half hours of AM, FM radio. Talk radio has often provided more reliable hints of the political future than think tanks and elected officials have. So in 2007, even as Republican leaders George W. Bush and John McCain trying to rebrand themselves as immigration reformers, Rush Limbaugh was advocating laws that would deny immigrants access to government services, meaning illegal immigrants, and force them to speak English. Wouldn't force them to speak English, you would incentivize them to speak English. Luke, your thoughts on the Ghislaine Maxwell verdict that seemed like a just verdict? Uh, no mention of the perpetrators like Clinton, Prince Andrew, Alan Dershowitz. Uh, I don't think there's particularly strong evidence on Alan Dershowitz in particular, I, I, or that Bill Clinton has done anything wrong. If there's evidence, let, let's see it. Luke Ford stays in his situational lane. She needs to write a tell-all before she gets Epstein. If you always take into account how your words will be taken in synagogue, you'll never have to worry about being sued or censored. Well, that's not true. Uh, there's quite robust discussion in the Orthodox synagogues that I attend would get censored, get you in great trouble if you said it on YouTube. All right, back to this uh, New Yorker article. So I think there's going to be a rise of alternative tech where we're going to have more free speech, places like Rumble and Odyssey, Parler. Right, Trump has fostered a crop of broadcasters who owe their power to him, men like Sebastian Gorka, Charlie Kirk, Brian Rosenwald, Rosenwald, the author of the History Talk Radio's Americas, noted the triumph of ideology over experience. Bongino is talking speaking to the people who believe Trump's press releases who see the world caving in and Biden as a raging socialist. So Rosenwald likens Dan Bongino's ascent to that of Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia to reach Congress in 2021, despite having voiced belief in a global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles and other delusions associated with QAnon. Back in the day, Marjorie Taylor Greene would have been consigned to the worst committees buried by the leadership, but the old rules of how you gain stature are out the door. Well, people who voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene didn't primarily do it because she had some delusions associated with QAnon, they did it because they had a, a choice, a binary choice between her and a Democrat. They'd prefer an eccentric Republican than someone on the left. Angelo Carasone, the president of Media Matters, the left-wing nonprofit group that tracks and criticizes the conservative press, so they don't label them as left-wing here in the New York, it just calls them a nonprofit group, said that the field is changing for the first time since the 1990s when Limbaugh, Fox News, and the blogger Matt Drudge established dominance. They created the guidelines that people walked along for decades. But Rush Limbaugh is gone. Drudge and Fox face more radical competitors. The new information ecosystem is taking shape over the next year or two, and whatever it shakes out is going to set the path for years to come. So in the long run, Dan Bongino's most significant impact may not come from what he says on his broadcasts. My goal is for my content to be the least interesting thing I did, he told me. He has used his money and his influence to foster technology startups such as Parler, Rumble, and AlignPay that are friendly to right-wing views. These companies are intended to withstand traditional pressure campaigns, including advertising boycotts, like the one that Media Matters prompted in 2019 against Tucker Carlson. 
What scares me about Dan Bongino is that this guy could end up owning or controlling or directly building the infrastructure that operationalizes a whole range of extremism. Well, I don't agree with Dan Bongino in many things, but I'm glad he's building up alternative tech where we can speak more freely. There used to be lines. You could say, okay, PayPal, don't let the January 6 people recruit money to pay for buses. This new alternative infrastructure is not going to stop that. Another uprising organizes online, there will be a whiplash effect. Everyone will say, how did that happen? Well, it's been happening. So I welcome the rise in alternative media, but also recognize that some of those critiques, some of those dangers are very much there. If you use alternative media to promote bad ideas, dangerous ideas, such as that massive voter fraud determined the 2020 election, then you're going to get a lot of bad behavior that goes with that. So in the book, Something in the Air, History of Radio, apparently radio stations used to emphasize variety and they avoided playing the same song twice in 24 hours. And in 1950, a young station owner in Nebraska named Todd Storrs decided to study listener preferences. He perused research by the University of Omaha. He he staked out the jukebox at a local diner. He discovered that even if people claim to want variety, they tend to choose the same songs over and over. So Storrs introduced a two-hour hit parade. By the end of the year, his station's market share had grown tenfold. His method became known as Top 40. So DJs discovered they did not need 40 songs to keep listeners engaged. If they quietly cut their list down to 30 or even 25 songs, the audience numbers responded immediately. Bon Gino. Bon Gino. Thank you for the... Ben Bon Gino. Thank you for the correction. Okay, so other DJs, including Don Imus, Howard Stern, and Glenn Beck, migrated from music to talk radio, bringing with them a pop sensibility. At Talkers Magazine, the editor Michael Harrison created a weekly list of hot topics, a hit parade of politics. So the similarity between top 40 music and commercial talk radio similarities are profound. So certain topics reliably get the phones to ring, get people to tune in. Certain topics are boring but important, so they stay away from those topics. So Limbaugh saw himself as an agent of commerce. But the new generation of radio conservatives, Sean Hannity, Mike Pence, Mark Levin, devote far more attention to ideology than to showbiz. They still want to be entertaining, but entertainment's not a big deal. These are people who are doing political content on broadcasting platforms as opposed to doing broadcasting with a political aspect. So Dan Bongino uh, went, went, went to war with his distributor when his radio distributor insisted that he get vaccinated. But uh, his failure to make his radio network comply his wishes fortified his arguments that conservatives need their own platforms to protect against liberal antagonists. They can't get a bank to cancel you. They'll go to the payment process of Stripe, he told me. If they can't get Stripe to cancel you, they'll go to PayPal. And Dan Bongino said to my audience years ago, we have to find every single link in that chain and create an alternate company that believes in free speech. So good on you, Dan, for this work. So he conceived of projects to create conservative alternatives to GoFundMe and Eventbrite. He promoted the video site Rumble, in which he is an investor. So Rumble's traffic has grown 20-fold since the fall of 2020, but it's still only 2% of what uh, YouTube gets in a typical month. The school boards and saying, uh, no, you won't teach this to our children. You won't teach uh, self-hate to white people the way you're doing it. Uh, do I have a correct analysis? Would you share that analysis? I, I see and- your point. <laughs> well, I, I, I grant you something there, but I do disagree. Uh, first off, I'll, I'll say this. I 
I, I actually do think they very well could sustain a red wave. And keep in mind, one of the most, uh, you can just lock it in on the betting market. Uh, the first midterm of a new presidency is going to go to the other party. Uh, the last time this didn't happen was 2002, and that was certainly after 9-11, and the Republicans were kind of still riding that wave, even, even when the 2000 um, election was actually quite ambiguous and disputed, in fact. Right. Uh, chat says, Luke, any thoughts on Anand Milshan, known massage, Mossad spy and producer of Fight Club? Well, the skills that it takes to be a spy and, and an arms dealer are probably very similar to the skills to producing movies. You have to be able to work with people, get things done. So it makes sense that he has a background in spying and perhaps arms dealing, uh, and uh, that these skills would also make for a good uh, movie producer. Fact. Uh, so I I do think that there will be a red wave. Um, this is a conventional view at this point. Um, most mainstream commentators are saying this, and I more or less agree. Uh, in terms of the Senate, it's a little bit iffier. Uh, the Senate, obviously, they have six-year terms, so they're all staggered. So who takes the Senate really is dependent upon that like combination of two things of when an election is up and what's the current social mood. You know, it's kind of like the, the earth is spinning, but also moving around the sun. You know, it's, it's like two things going on at the same time. Um, I, I, I was just looking at the map of the Senate, and I think it's, I think it's reasonable to suggest that either a, uh, a deadlock will be sustained, i.e. will be something like 50-50, or maybe even the Democrats could hold it and get 51-49 or something like that. So I, I do think there's going to be a red wave in the House, the conventional view. Um, <clears throat> but I think the Senate less likely. Now, in terms of CRT, I mean, do they really sound like Richard Spencer uh, in the sense that they want 1776? Um, they don't. What, what is the 1619 project? Is that what it is? Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 1776, not 1619. We don't want to hear about any of that icky slavery stuff. Well, in um, and and look, on one level, I get it. I get the idea that there are there there is an unbelievably toxic ideology out there, mostly in academia. I don't know the degree to which being taught in schools, at least across the country, there are also that you can find via social media, very, very toxic educators out there who love to upload things on TikTok. Uh, just speaking from my personal perspective, that has not been my experience at all out here in the sticks of Montana. Um, I do. I just simply don't see this happening at all as a parent. And in fact, I like um, the teachers that I've met to, to a person. They've all been very cool, down to earth and good people. Um, maybe a little more strict than I am, but I'm, I'm kind of the... Um, the indulgent dad that lets everyone get away with everything. <laughs> uh, I've heard something like you're not allowed to talk in the halls and you're not allowed to say certain things. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, wow, even more strict than I am. I should be like, you know, I don't know, like uh, I'm almost the reverse of those parents. Uh, now, in terms of CRT, um, what is it exactly? I mean, CRT is a legal tradition. Um, I actually was exposed to it a bit in graduate school, uh, first through a, uh, a video. It was actually from the 90s we watched. Uh, Space Traders, I believe is what, what it was called. And it was about this kind of fantasy, almost Twilight Zone-like fantasy about how if given the choice, um, if aliens came down and said, we're going to give you trillions of dollars, or we're going to re remove pollution from your seas and air, uh, would you just give us all your black people? We're going to make this trade. So we're, we're, you know, highly advanced space aliens. We're coming down. We're, you know, we could destroy you if we wanted to, but we're just going to be like, give us all your blacks and then we'll give you clean air. And basically, if you were allowed, if, if America were allowed to vote on this, you know, grotesque prospect, they would secretly vote. They would just be like, all right, we're giving up our, our blacks. Ladies and gentlemen, the thought experiment that has ruined Richard Spencer's brain forever. <laughs> this, will, <laughs> this will wreck the leftist inside of you. This kind of choice. <laughs> How many? Le I mean, it's it is a thought experiment. Uh, go go look it up on YouTube. It's out there, like Space Traders, I believe is what it's called. Um, how many leftists would take that bargain? How many? Now, first off, I'll ask you this: Who would take that bar? Who would be more apt to take that bargain? White liberals or diehard Trump's conservatives? 
I would say white liberals. White liberals would be the only ones interested because they're the only ones that have emotionally inc increased the value of environmentalism so much that it would be worth it for them. Well, beyond that, I think they would all do it secretly. Like they, they would, they would like say they weren't doing it, but once they got in the ballot box, they'd be like, "Sorry." <laughs> But like, tr like MAGA people would be like, no, we can't do that. We'll be done. The pollution's a myth anyway. And oh, these aliens. Oh. <laughs> the aliens don't exist. <laughs> the aliens don't exist. Th that would be their position. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. But uh, you're I'm mentioning. I'm myself, in fact. You're mentioning you know, CRT. <laughs> you're mentioning CRT as a legal tradition. Have you been watching some Vouch secretly? Uh, no, I, I have not. I, I've, I have seen Vouch. I, uh, I, I really dislike him. But um, uh, no, I, I was exposed to. I, I actually have the CRT reader here in my library. I've read a little bit, but it's just not of uh, profound interest to me. But I, I think what, what people, when they say CRT, what they're doing is they're getting at this bigger thing. They're getting at basically all of academia and its adoption of race as a concept, maybe as a more important concept than class. Uh, well, anti-white hate, also white guilt stuff. They don't want to yeah. hear it. They don't like the diversity. No more, no, no more last Jediing my superheroes. No more, you know, making me feel bad. They don't want to have it. So they, they ultimately want a kind of white country, but they can't assert that. And so instead, they talk about how they, they don't want it shoved down their throat. And they accuse the, their opponents of, ironically, being racist. So that's what's happening. Now, I would say that, you know, one reaction to this would be to kind of root on these parents and so on. I, I think another reaction would be that if, and I did say this from the beginning, I remember saying this directly at Texas A&M, when I had the biggest platform that I've ever had, uh, you have to own it. You, you can't just go and pretend that slavery didn't exist. You can't pretend that segregation didn't exist. You can't pretend that something like a genocide of Native Americans, the American Indian, didn't exist. Yeah, the powerful have always taken what they want and the weak have endured what they must. So the natural order of how human life goes is genocide, is segregation, is racism and slavery and exclusion. It's just that uh, some civilizations men manage to, you know, rise above these these basic instincts. But uh, slavery and exclusion and discrimination and genocide that has characterized human history. Certainly, a displacement and 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 brutal treatment, and, and in some ways, highly maligned treatment didn't exist, and that those historical facts haven't in, inflected the way they live now. You can't tell me that and not visit Browning, Montana, and see for yourself a consequence of this. Now, I know, I know the IQ stuff. I, I know the culture stuff. I get it. But history does matter. And if we're going to be honest of ourselves, we can't just treat white people as this big global teddy bear that never did anything wrong. In fact, we did a lot of wrong things. We are monsters. The left Absolutely. is correct about us. Yes. And if you want to be a European American or a white nationalist or a white advocate or whatever you want to call yourself, you are going to have to address that at some point. In the words of Jack Donovan, who, by the way, was a good version of Jack Murphy. And I think Jack Murphy might have stolen the whole Jack Donovan persona. Jack Donovan, flawed human being, to say the least, never lied about himself. He was a kind of manliness dude, you know, kind of guru type. Never lied about the fact that he's a homosexual. It was open about it. And when someone's open about their identity or, or failings, you could say, you can't really criticize them. He never lied. He was also a just infinitely more interesting thinker and, and writer than Jack Murphy could ever be. But Jack Donovan said it best. We weren't the only race to colonize and enslave people. We were just really damn good at it. That is true. And you have to embrace the darkness if you are also going to embrace the light. Western civilization is not about the 18th century enlightenment and the quest for individualism and democracy. That has been a rather fleeting aspect of our history. And in many ways, it's just a kind of euphemistic look at who we are. You have to address these things. And maybe you have to be told that you're a bit of a monster. Maybe that's actually a important part of growing up 
and becoming mature is well, understanding your ancestors were monsters. This is and where so I take issue. I fully because... endorse critical race theory <laughs> and think that it is an important step forward in uh, in our understanding of who we are, as opposed to lying about it or telling some kind of fairy tale about the founding of this country. Well, most people have want to have a positive view of their own people, right? So you can call it a a fairy tale, but Jews want to have a positive view of Jewish history. Christians want to have a positive view of Christian history. I'm sure, you know, blacks and Japanese and Chinese all want to have a positive view of their own history. So positive view does not necessarily equal fairy tale. But you prefer to, if you love your spouse, you prefer to concentrate on what's great about your spouse and to minimize the importance of their dark sides, all right? So you want to build a relationship with someone, you keep your focus on their good points and don't put as much emphasis on their bad points. So there's a new new show out from Decoding the Gurus. It's called Decoding Academia, False Positive Psychology. This is popularly made and he's published various studies to make that argument. And he's generally regarded as being very bad in the current, in the coronavirus era and to be engaging in many of the things that he was previously warning people about mm, um, mm. In, in the selective way that he analyzes that and, and so on. So he's a cautionary tale, but he's not an author. Yeah, I wonder, yeah, so the confusion, once again, because I have to apologize, because, you know, yeah, you I should. got so confused, I read right. the wrong article. He, you know, he can That's all right, but you know this article. You've seen this article. This is a classic of the genre. And mm. for me, the reason this article is, I, I often assign this to the first year students that I'm teaching about methods or that kind of thing, because I think it is a very nice introduction to a lot of the issues that are central to the replication crisis. And it also gives a practical uh, demonstration of how they could be applied into like presenting the results of papers uh, uh, by mm-hmm. giving these kind of two fake experiments, but we'll get into them. So mm-hmm. uh, what about you, Matt? Do, do you have anything general about this paper? Uh, general comments to begin with. Many people listening would be familiar with the replication crisis, which particularly affected uh, experimental social psychology, but arguably affects a lot of areas in psychology and the social sciences generally. So the other bit of background knowledge for people is that, you know, in a prototypical experimental study, there will be sort of a hypothesis, uh, a research methodology, some sort of experimental survey, some sort of measures are selected, some procedures are done, participants are recruited, and uh, measures are made. And then the data is subjected to some statistical analysis. And most people will have heard of p-values. This is... I always get this wrong. I shouldn't get it wrong. <laughs> the correct definition of what a p-value actually well, is. Good luck. But yeah, I'm not going to try. Um, <laughs> so the uh, <laughs> I'm so upset. Long, yeah, yeah, that's, that's stupid. The, the definition of it. So, but look, long story short, p-value is getting used by researchers to determine whether or not uh, finding would be unlikely to have happened by chance, and they often choose a threshold of p as less than or equal to 0.05. So that would be corresponding to a five percent probability that the statistic would be observed, assuming the null hypothesis. If they get something smaller than that, then they reject the null hypothesis. They accept. The alternative hypothesis, and back, you know, Bob's your uncle, you can go ahead, write the paper up, and get some citations. Yeah. But Chris, you want to take us through it a bit more, or some yeah. from you? Yeah. So the, the the concern is like an acceptable rate for false positives, right? If you're getting, uh, I like the analogies that compare like getting a cancer diagnosis, right? If it, we wouldn't accept a five percent error rate on in a cancer diagnosis usually because the results are are quite impactful for people who receive them. But um, for other things, so the error rate that you'll accept on a given test it should be variable. But in a lot of social sci- sciences, a general rule of a 5% error, 1 in 20 error is applied. And p-values are, like you say, there's a lot of uh, nuance in the specific way you describe them or whatever. But the, another feature about them, which is important, that is that they are the, the probability over time, right? So you, you can trust p-values to give you the kind of correct answer if you are applying them over time. Any individual p-value should be treated. So 
this isn't necessarily the most exciting conversation, but understanding p-values and understanding, you know, which academic studies have value and which don't, it comes down to unexciting analysis like this. With some suspicion, right? Because just the way the probabilities work. But in any case, it isn't all about p-values, this paper. There's plenty of papers which are about p-values. What this paper is primarily about is a separate construct, which is equally as influential to psychology, but not so commonly known. And they, they describe it as researcher degrees of freedom. And it essentially... So just because a study you know, has certain results doesn't mean the study is valid. Just because the CDC or the FDA or the prime minister or the president or this epidemiologist says something doesn't mean it's true. You have to understand information critically. You have to understand what's the source of this information and what's it based on and what's the track record. It means the choices that people make in the course of collecting or analyzing the data, reporting data that can be reported or are not reported. So it's all the choices that researchers make, like how big will the sample size be? What kind of measures will I use? What kind of statistical test will I use? What results will I report in the end paper? Which things will I not mention in the end paper? Which journal will I target it for? So on and so forth. All of these hundreds of decisions that go into research that, uh, and each one has multiple choices attached to it. So these are the degrees of freedom that you have. And this paper is saying why we need to pay more attention and take steps to try and control them or be more transparent about what they are. Yeah, so it's, it's obviously like it's a technical topic, but it's one that's near and dear to the heart of practicing scientists and researchers because everybody wants the research literature to be true. This is the ideal that everything that is published reflects a true kind of finding. Now, the problem is that when you collect data, there's, just, there's inherent randomness involved of various kinds. So you don't get absolute true or, or not true evidence. What you get is some sort of measure of certainty. So, you know, as you said, by convention in the social sciences, they've tended towards just setting this, this, this p-value, this probability that the finding is, is or, or the truth is, is there is no difference or no relationship when actual fact there is one. I've set this arbitrary threshold of 0.05, and if it crosses that, then they're taken as like a, well, okay, this is probably true. It's, it's at least the probability of being true is high enough that we're happy for this to be published and for it to enter the literature. So that's all very well and good unless somebody has their, their finger on the tiller. So that's yeah. what this is about. So one of the examples they give to illustrate like researcher degrees of freedom is they talk about excluding participants, right? You run a study and you've got your data. And then- okay, so J.F. Garapi completely changed his mind on vaccines based on just a terrible, terrible study. It's absolute nonsense. I love this guy. I think he's right on target in understanding the politics of vaccination. So we'll get there. We'll get there. We have lots so, of vaccine news. But William Runner is already on entropy. He says, my children. So, so now JF, he's a, he's a fan of anti-vaxxer Robert Kennedy. I've had two COVID shots each so far. They are both adults. The only people really worried about COVID shots are the paranoids. That okay, so. In the is... leg from the shot, dude dropped dead of a heart attack. Yeah, and we don't have a. We don't look at this with enough seriousness. We are, we are, we don't even have the statistical tools to determine just how much, how much death have we caused? How much heart attacks have we caused? Because a lot of people will just be noted as heart attack. And it, it may be, I don't know, a month, two months after the vaccine. Was it the vaccine? We don't know. We don't have the, we don't have the proper control groups to establish that kind of stuff. Instead, what we did is we selected a population of 60,000 people, and they're the only ones on which the companies are running their trial, and they are not necessarily demographically representative of the rest of the nation, and let alone the rest of the world. And we're, we're waving these uh, studies saying it's been determined to be safe. And these studies, first, they mess with the control group because eventually they offer the actual vaccine. So you never get to know more than a year or two. You never get to know. So we'll learn more about the study that uh, JF allowed to, to change his mind. See, 
title of this show, The Jeff's Doing the Study That Changed My View on All Vaccines. What are the consequences of these vaccines? Well, I'm going to show a study that has tried to do its best to recover the control group, and the results are not reassuring. It's a study I've already covered on YouTube, but I wasn't able to speak freely about it. So now that we're on Odyssey, now that I enjoy this platform that lets me talk about whatever I want. Uh... So sometimes freedom is a bad thing, right? I mean, freedom is going to expose you know, JF's irresponsible anti-vaccine views. So sometimes freedom allows people to do good, but often freedom allows people to do really bad things. So just because a group or individuals get more freedom isn't necessarily a good thing. Right? There are a lot of groups who have abused freedom. There was a massive increase in crime after civil rights legislation. Like, Why, after you pass all this civil rights legislation, did you then get a massive increase in crime? When, when uh, laws criminalizing homosexuality were done away with in the 1960s and 70s, you, you then got AIDS. All right? So people can use freedom to engage in sexual promiscuity, in crime, and all sorts of antisocial and damaging behavior. Uh, we'll be talking about it. Disclose.tv says NASA enlists 24 theologians to assess how the world would react to the discovery of extraterrestrial life. <laughs> the, the extraterrestrial comes in and, uh, hey, are you not shocked? Man, I got a lot going on lately. <laughs> that, is a, that is a meme that I knew about from a long time ago, but it's so fun. It's uh, very representative of the state of mind of many. Personally, of course, as someone who has already described what this extraterrestrial would look like in the revolutionary phenotype, I'm very interested about discovering life because I predicted something. I said. So why is JF Garapi very interested in discovering extraterrestrial life? And why are so many people like Carl Sagan, et cetera, very interested in discovering extraterrestrial life? Because they're not religious, right? They've got this spiritual religious void in their soul. And so they have to reach for something transcendent. And so instead of God and traditional Christianity or Judaism, their, their religious yearnings get met by seeking extraterrestrial life. That based on my theory, the life forms we discover will have genetic layers, and the number of genetic layers they have will correspond to the number of phenotypic revolutions they've had in the past. Disclose.tv says on Gab, uh, Justin, German Parliament, to start discussing the compulsory vaccination of the general population in the first week of session in vaccine, okay. coming from Denmark, which shows that the vaccine has a negative efficiency, a negative efficacy after 90 days of getting it. Yeah, but he's talking about uh, the vaccine has a ne negative efficacy. That's not for hospitalization. That's not for death. That's just for infection, which may be completely without symptoms. 90 days after you got the vaccine, it seems that, if anything, it helps you get Omicron. Not surprising, then, that there's so much people catching it so quick. We have uniformized the antibody population in the human species. We've uniformized it by giving them an old version of the virus, and we gave them again and again and again. <clears throat> Why are we talking about squads for vaccination when the data currently indicates that we will be putting people in further danger 90 days after the injection? That's not true. It's, it's just complete nonsense, right? It's not true for hospitalization. It's not for, true for serious illness. It's not true for... Oh, well, maybe we'll be protecting them for 30 days, and then it's going to be neutral. And then, according to the Denmark study, it's going to be worse. So we're, we're buying time here. What are we doing? We're trying to live the, the, the best last 30 days of our lives. 2,400 flights canceled since Christmas Eve on crew shortage. As the holiday weekend draws to a close, it has been anything Come but on. merry. Get to the study, JF. King fat if you give it too much calories. In combination, of course, not just with the calorie intake you have, but 
the amount of work if they eat more than some. Uh, when they say 30 days of protection, that was in the context of after the two weeks wait after the vaccine. So, so I don't know if what you say is true, but certainly they were talking about protection being present after the two weeks and then, one, and then t within the period of 30 days that extend after. Uh, Waglapop says, I Come on, people to respect me. I want to test them. And so one way of testing them is to... So JF says he wants to test people. Right? That's a very exhausting way to go through life. Right? That's going to keep you isolated and lonely. Right? To, to go through life constantly testing people. Because I've done that. Right? It's, been, it's been a reflex of mine just to you know, test and test and test people. It exhausts them and it drives people away from you is to just say, yeah, I'm unvaccinated and see what they're going to do about it. We get a lot of pressure. We get a lot of people um, telling us you should get vaccinated. And they th the, the most disgusting thing is all these people think they know better. These people don't know about the study I'm about to show you. These people don't know that I spend my days reading about any, so any study that has been done on the COVID vaccine. The study you're about to show is absolute nonsense, JF. Come on, man. Just because it's called a study doesn't mean it has depth. Just because it's called a study doesn't mean it's true and excellent. I think I know about it. And yet, uh, these people talk to you based on stuff they've seen on mainstream TV. It's like, yeah, but they've, they've said this on mainstream TV, and they've said that about Omicron. And have you heard about Delta? Yeah, I heard about it. I'm kind of a specialist at this point, <laughs> against my will. It's unbelievable, the, the level of lack of knowledge out there. And yet, these people allow themselves to judge you and to try to educate you. This kind of delusion that education is worth something in, in a world where there are so many stupid people out there. It's one of the great disappointments of the universe, as far as I'm concerned. And look at look at how transparent it is. Just before we get to the serious study that is not so much about the COVID vaccine, but about all the vaccines taken together. Just look at how transparent they are about... Look, Fauci is about to acknowledge, he acknowledged on ABC, that he's, uh, he's basically acknowledging that the whole strategy around the vaccine is extortion. Here we have a government agent talking in the public space um, about committing a crime, the crime of extortion against the population. Listen to this. A vaccine requirement for a person getting on the plane is just another level of getting people to have a mechanism that would spur them to get vaccinated. Namely, you can't get on a plane. That's not extortion. That's just encouraging people, creating more and more incentives. All right. That, that's far from extortion. All right. So you want to encourage people to do the oh, right with thing. Down with YouTube. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll be, I'll be keeping those LBC in my pocket until LBC is uh, worth something. Uh, and I can't wait for someone to use the cash feature because I've enabled cash super chats. Hopefully we get someone uh, a courageous. Come on, get to the study. The study that changed my view on all vaccines. That's J.F. Garabee's title for this video. And the study is by two crank anti-vaxxers, right? once a journalist. For two years around COVID, that uh, New York is self-destructing. I do not see a scenario for any kind of shutdown. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio declared this week. Uh, you'll, you'll become extremely fat. Wow, Thomas has succeeded at using the cash feature. We're getting cash. Come on, JF, get to the uh, study. It, 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 a lot of people have felt betrayed. They felt like they hadn't voted for this. And now he's... At the bottom level, where he's operating restaurant, he has to deal with the consequences, the, the authoritarian consequences of the own, the own direction that he has taken USA toward, the direction of vaccine authoritarianism. So, 
Uh, let's talk about the study that, to me, was a game changer around my view of vaccines. I've uh... so it's not surprising. It's not a bad thing if people change their mind. It's not, it's not surprising or a bad thing if people find a study or a book or a video that changes their mind. But it says a lot about them when when they say, "Oh, this completely changed my mind." Right? It says something about you. It could be a good thing or a bad thing. What's the quality of the study on which JF changed his mind? Gabbed about it. Someone asked me via email what I thought of other vaccines, i.e. those vaccines given to children for other diseases than COVID. Personally, I was convinced by a research article that we are misguided in our vaccine schedules and policies. So he's, he's convinced by this article by two cranks. These in general, and that this is not just about COVID. So this article is named Analysis of Health Outcomes in Vaccinated and Unvaccinated Children, Developmental Delays, Asthma, Ear Infection, and Gastrointestinal Disorders. So what they did is they looked at a period between... Okay, the authors, they're Brian Hooker and Neil Miller, right? Neil Miller's a journalist and anti-vaxxer. Brian Hooker uh, is an right, interesting character, right? Let's let me find my link here about... Just have to put Brian, Brian Hooker, Brian S. Hooker. Okay, he's a bioengineer, right? He's an engineer, he's a chemist. And he promotes claims that uh, vaccines cause autism. He's had multiple studies that have been retracted, right? Does not have an impressive uh, track record. And this is this is the guy that uh, JF says, oh, his work just changed my view on all vaccines. 2005 and 2015. And they looked at a given set of medical practices, three of them, three networks of clinic or three clinics. And they took all of the children that would be of a given age and they took them when they had had vaccines or didn't or chose not to get vaccines for three to six years. They are children that were between the birth. So have you read the blog Respectful Insolence? So it's a blog by a surgeon, David Gorski. So he writes, uh, Brian Hooker and Neil Z. Miller published another terrible vaxxed, anti-vax study. And this is the study that JF says just changed his mind on all vaccines. Brian Hooker and Neil Z. Miller, two anti-vaccine propagandists disguising themselves as scientists, published yet another terrible vax-unvax study purporting to show unvaccinated children are healthier. Remember, we have basically doubled our lifespans in industrial societies over the past 120 years through things like sanitation, through things like vaccine, through modern public health measures. So how awful was that study? This is Surgeon David Gorski writing. So he says, I was looking back at my blog over the past few months and noticed the last time I read anything that wasn't COVID was on March 16th. He says, I feel like I need a break from the unrelenting, depressing news about COVID. But yesterday I was made aware of the publication of a study that in this age of over 100,000, so this blog post was written May 29, 2020. So in this age of over 100,000, Americans dead from a pandemic. We now have over 800,000 dead from COVID. Right? Here's another example of anti-vaxxers promoting a favorite myth of theirs, namely that unvaccinated children are healthier than vaccinated children. Spoiler, they aren't. Because, of course, they believe that vaccines are toxic brews of horrible chemicals and DNA and tissue from aborted fetuses, and therefore cause autism and every manner of chronic health problem, thus making our children the sickest generation. Another spoiler, they aren't. Yes, it's another vax versus unvax study, and it's just as bad as every other anti-vax, vax versus unvax study out there, but superficially better in appearance. Hilariously, it's by two anti-vaxxers whom we've met before, Brian Hooker and Neil Z. Miller. 
Study is published in an open access journal. All right, anyone can publish there. And is entitled Analysis of Health Outcomes in Vaccinated and Unvaccinated Children, Developmental Delays, Asthma, Ear Infections, and Gastrointestinal Disorders. So there's a long analysis here on how awful this study is by uh, David Gorski. I'll put a link to his analysis in video description. All right, let's get a little bit more from Decoding the Gurus here, Decoding Academia on False Positive Psychology. And you might think, well, some of these results are pretty crappy. The, the data is low quality. So how do we remove the bad quality responses? And they point out that when they looked at 30 articles in psych science, they had a whole bunch of different reasons for excluding participants. In particular, they were focused on like time, right? The time it takes to complete the task. And they were saying that people apply different standards. Some people apply the fastest 2.5 or fastest 5% and remove them. Other people take like a certain amount of standard deviation from the mean as a signal. Other people using a whole variety of different criteria, right? But there's no standardized set criteria. And that if the researchers decided this in advance or for some particular reason, it, it could be useful, but it, or it can be fine, but it could also be the case that willingly or knowingly or unknowingly that they are selecting cutoff points that enable them to remove results that are inconvenient or that help push things towards significance. And when there's such an incentive, when you're more likely to get a paper published, the results are more interesting whenever you find this mm-hmm. as a result of the statistically significant, this can add up, right? These little decisions that you make to push things in one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. So to take this example, as you said, there isn't an obvious standard rule that should be applied. And it's probably okay for multiple rules to be applied. I think the real issue here is whether it's post hoc or a priori, right? So this is something I'm sure we'll talk about more. But when you talk about these researcher degrees of freedom, so there's all these decision points, as you said, and they're kind of fuzzy. It's kind of arguable. Should it be, should you, you know, reject these responses because they took much longer than most other participants? Should you reject it if they sped through it and they, they completed it in the top percentile or whatever? Or do you set some number of milliseconds? You know, you could argue for any of those decisions. And it's, Arguably, again, not a problem for you to choose any of those choices. But the issue is, is whether you make that decision before you look at the data and start, you know, having a play with it and doing some statistical analysis or a priori, or whether or not you analyze your data, you might find your results are kind of, you know, they're kind of maybe in the right direction, but not really significant. And then you might go back and revisit some of those decisions to, in scare quotes, improve the quality of your data set. Yeah. And you stop fiddling when uh, you get the result that you're looking for. Yeah. And so they give a nice demonstration. This is one of the reasons I really like this paper. So they do they report two studies that they actually ran. So study one is called Musical Contrast and Subjective Age. And they, they get 30 participants and they randomly assign them to listen to Kalimba by Mr. Scruff, which came with Windows 7 operating system. So this did set. Or a children's song, Hot Potato, performed by the band that Matt often recommends, The Wiggles. So a right, kind of children's right. song mm-hmm. or an, a more adult. Adults can listen to The Wiggles, Secrets, you're saying? That's fine. Yes. And they, they then report how old they feel right now after listening to the music and people feel older after listening hot potato than listening to the control song, right? And it's P equals 0.03 is the relevant P value. And then they, but that's the prelude to study two when they say we, we decide to conceptually replicate and extend these findings and we look. What- okay, so that's some highbrow stuff from Decoding the Gurus. That will do it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.